Hello and welcome to a special roundtable on postwrestling.com, looking at the career so far of Kenny Omega, and I'm your host, Martin Bushby, and joining to me, me today is a huge assembly and a big variety of guests. We've got Sonna Lad. Then we'll, next up, we've got WH Park. Hello, everyone. Then we've got Rich Fan. Hello. Will Cooling. Hello, everybody. And JP Houlihan. Hello. Yeah, thanks for joining me today. I know this is a big lineup of guests, but um, the, the idea for this show really came, um, you know, because Kenny Omega must be one of the most talked about wrestlers from the past 15 years or so. And then people have, you know, really strong opinions on him and he's quite the polarizing figure. And I mean, obviously, we can't cover everything on this show, but um, I just wanted to bring everyone together to look back and talk his big moments, you know. We'll go through a bit of a timeline. It might be all over the shop as well as looking at different parts of his career. But, I mean, before we go any further, I just wanted to ask you guys, when when did you first hear or see Kenny Omega Sonal? So it was weird. Like, before I even got into anything, this was literally the time I was watching WWE. For some reason, Being the Elite came up on my YouTube channel. And so this was before I even knew about things like New Japan or DDT. I literally just clicked on it. And that's how I started. It was probably 2017, late 2017. And I became obsessed with those. And that's sort of where I found Kenny Omega. And that sort of led to me watching New Japan. So, yeah, it was random that I literally found him just randomly on YouTube on being the elite before his wrestling. But, yeah, that's how I found him. And what about you, JP? I was thinking back to this of the first time I heard about him, and it might well have been when he left the developmental, because it felt with that moment in time, nobody did that, and that in and of itself was kind of newsworthy. Um, in terms of seeing his matches, it really would have been, it, it probably would have been the, the DDT stuff in particular. It would have been the nine-year-old girl. It would have been the Yoshihiko. Um, but I then was kind of exposed to sort of bits and bobs of the PWG Ring of Honor stuff, as well as bits of the coat of Bushi to kind of flesh out what I thought was somebody who was just kind of primarily a bit of a comedy wrestler. So, yeah, I, I would say that was like the first time I was kind of aware of him. And what about you, Richard? You've got a similar story to JP. Yeah, it's pretty close. I think the first time I heard of Kenny was during the U.S. invasion attack for New Japan, because at the time I was a, I still am a huge MVP fan, and he was in the tournament for the Intercontinental title, and Omega was in the opening match. And so he wrestled, uh, I want to say it was, uh, at some point he wrestled Liger, but I think that night it was Josh Daniels or something like that. So it was like, okay, this guy's got a pretty weird name, move on to him. Let me watch some of my MVP using, uh, you know, the irreversible crisis and all these other fun names. And then as I kept going and kept seeing them, kept seeing more names, uh, my buddies who were into PF PWG started referring. And then of course, uh, as everyone's mentioned, Yoshihiko kind of changed it for him because I think at that point, Twitter gifts and YouTube videos starting to surface and that kind of sucked me in. What about you, uh, WH? Had you sort of like seen him before some of the stories that JP and everyone's told? I mean, the first time I heard about him was like in the Observer, like talking about his time in developmental for the WWF, WWE. And then he started showing up in Jersey All Pro Wrestling, I think, which was, I thought, an odd fit. Um, but I didn't properly see him until until like he started working in, in DDT and then Pro Wrestling Guerrilla. But 
like the the stuff where I really became really aware of him and started really paying more attention to him was like when he started working New Japan doing the junior tag team title stuff with with Kota Ibushi and then he is his run as junior champion in all Japan pro wrestling. Well, Will, for me, it was, um, I remember reading about him in Power Slam and then I'd seen bits of clips for him. I think the first proper match I saw, it was um, him against Brian Danielson in PWG from around 2008. And then a few clips from him from DDT. Was um, he someone on your radar, like through Power Slam magazine and things like that? No, because I think by that point, I'd stopped reading Power Slam. So for me, I spent most of the 10s, you know, watching UFC um, started you no know, starting a marriage, and so like the first time I remember watching him, I may have heard his name beforehand of things like the old Meltzer Semper Vivi um, Wrestling Observer Limited shows would actually be his re debut for New Japan um, at Wrestle Kingdom Nine, where he um, won the uh, junior heavyweight title, and I remember thinking that he was a rather unimpressive geeky character. Um, <laughs> and we will talk about it in terms of how I see how he grew over time. Mm. But I just remember I was in Zimbabwe watching uh, Wrestle Kingdom after staying up all night to watch uh, John Jones versus Daniel Cormier. And actually, that Omega Kushida match was one of the matches I was least impressed with because it was very much me. It's now easy to watch New Japan. I can just subscribe to this online service. I'm going to give it a try, see what the fuss is about. Was really impressed by a lot on that show. But actually, Omega was not one of the people I was impressed by. Oh, wow. So you've got quite a different story to uh, the rest of us. I, su- I suppose we all had similar stories, didn't we? You know, it was my first sort of seeing his DDC stuff and then, you know, subsequently his New Japan stuff. But, um, I mean, just quickly running through his early years, obviously he debuted in 2001 wrestling in, in Winnipeg. And then, as JP mentioned earlier, he signed the developmental deal with... Uh, was it Deep South? That was a WWE developmental uh, yeah. around the time in 2005, but obviously he requested his release uh, a year later from that because he couldn't really see his career going anywhere. And I think it's safe to say it was 2008 when he started traveling the world and work, working a lot of promotions and started to come on fans' radars, um, you know, appearing in Ring of Honor, PWG, Jersey All Pro. I mean, he even came over to Europe for the ill-fated Independence Day show and even appeared for WXW a couple of times. Um so I suppose um, a good jumping-off point, really, because we've all mentioned it a couple of times there, would be uh, PWG. I mean, this is the company he has appeared for a lot in his early career and then has made sort of like sporadic appearances since. Um, I mean, there's some, some big stuff early in his career in PWG. He won um, the Battle of Los Angeles in 2009. He had the tag team with Chuck Taylor and then some memorable matches against uh, Brian Danielson. He even won the PWG title around that time, JP. Yeah, and that's a great match. If you go back and watch the the final, the, the match against uh, Roderick Strong, it's really, really good. I went back and, and re-watched that, and it's definitely worth it. I think it was the, I don't know if it's the only time that the winner of the Battle of Los Angeles also became PWG champion as well. Mm. And, you know, he's a, at that point in time, he's a, it feels like he's a good fit. And it's interesting because I'm kind of I'm trying to sort of notice how he how his work would have changed over the years. And PWG allows him to be silly Kenny for quite large. And you mentioned stuff like the thumb wars and various other things that are going to come up as well. Um, but I think like and he makes it's interesting if you go back and watch his post match speech after he beats Roderick Strong and it's it's a really cracking match. 
is uh, one of the things that he says is that um, the only reason he is even a citizen in North America and he's not working exclusively in Japan is is PWG. Um, and it's there, though, you realise all the connections that you see where he is today. So you see him and the, there's a great angle at the end where he comes out and he's like thanking the young bucks, their friends out of the business. And you're there thinking... So for everybody else who imagines this is like kind of through New Japan, it's like, no, this is all sort of five, six years even previous to that. And then they turn on him and then it's him and Brian. And then there's a whole thing with um, El Generico as well. And it was just, it was, it was really fun. It, it kind of made me then think it's, it's a strange thing that he didn't go at that point the way that a lot of people would have done, which is the kind of big extended run in Ring of Honor and then inevitably getting signed um, at that point in time. And then it, it but it, doesn't really go that way it sort of feels like then by 2010 it's it's ddt it's new japan that that's really the focus so yeah but these are like these there's some great stuff in there early doors pwg yeah definitely i mean um what what about you rich were you were watching some of kenny's stuff in pwg around this time so i almost feel like it's a forgotten part of his career that he had uh, all these masters in pwg in sort of 2008 2009 Funny enough, I wasn't, and it was always with Omega, especially in PWG. I would see his matches when I would buy compilation tapes of other people. So in his case, he would pop up a lot when it came to Kevin Steen because of the or Best of Battle of Los Angeles. Because at the time, I you know I, I wasn't in California. I'm here in the East Coast, and I didn't have the ability to get there. So a lot of that stuff, in hindsight, I'm catching up to and I'm watching. And as he's coming into the scene in New Japan. I then got to go back a little bit and look at his catalog. So, yeah, this is stuff, just like JP mentioned, watching that match with Roderick, you know, the king of the I'm never going back with those, you know, crappy little boots. Uh, try not to cuss, so I'll try to edit that there. Uh, but, yeah, he is just at this point in his career from watching it as a person that didn't see it in the moment. It's very interesting as he's transitioning away from some of the sillier things that he wanted to do when he was uh, exploring all of the video game side of himself and starting to add that hard hitting. Like, for instance, Danielson, when you watch that match, he is not here for any of that stuff. And so you have to kind of bring it. And so it's really cool to see that education in real time with that hindsight being there. Yeah, definitely. But I suppose uh, most people know Kenny from his work in sort of like New Japan and DDT. But um, I mean, WH was appearing for All Japan around 2010, even winning their junior heavyweight title. That's um, something that doesn't really get talked about uh, anymore. No, I mean, he had a pretty good run there. He won the uh, junior heavyweight title from Kai in uh, 2011, actually, October 23rd, 2011. He had defenses against Minoru Tanaka, Hiroshi Yamato, Kazahashi. That's a really good match. Um, Shuji Kondo, which is my favorite match of that reign. And then uh, he had a match where he defended in, in uh, DDT against Shigehiro Irie, which I don't know if Shigehiro Irie really qualifies as a junior heavyweight. That might be like DDT's little comedic way of making fun of that title. I don't know. Now. Well, not now, definitely. And then he loses it back to Kai on uh, May 27th, 2012. It's, it's a nice little tight little reign, and it's fun. It's, he's, a, he's a comedic heel. Like, he's a goofy heel. And I think that suits him, his goofiness. What I call it, like, he's a weebo, right? That's his character. And I think that's reflecting of his real-life persona. He's someone who fetishizes Japanese pop culture, not actual Japanese <laughs> culture, you know? Because he, he doesn't actually talk about, like, you know, Shintoism or Buddhism or, or going to, like, picking tea leaves or shit like that, like the stuff I did when I lived in Japan. He talks about, like, 
going to fucking Akihabara, buying video games and like playing Street Fighter 2 all fucking day in like in one of those arcades that you and I went to, Martin. Remember we went to one of those arcades? That's where he spent most Indeed. of his time. Shit like that, right? So that's that's okay as a heel character in the mid card of a Japanese promotion. It doesn't really fit in the, the main event scene, but we'll get to that later. Indeed we will, because, um, I mean, it's good to hear about some of his old Japan career, but obviously some of his more famous early work, of course, comes with DDT. Um, seems, um, I think it was um, a promotion that he was a fan of, and prior heading to Japan, he uploaded a few videos of himself having DDT-style matches on YouTube, and uh, he was hoping to get a match with Kota Ibushi, and he got his wish as they fetched him over in 2008. I think... Uh, before we go into some of the other stuff, obviously his most famous match for me, I think, around this time was against a, a young girl called Haruka. And um, I've seen her age put as nine on the YouTube videos and certainly on Wikipedia, but I've heard interviews with Omega where he said she was maybe seven or eight, so even younger than nine. But the um, story is there. Obviously, he'd been training her for three weeks before the match, and the uh, the two had already had a, um, you know, a, a few training sessions, and then they had a really short match at Correcon Hall. But this video went absolutely viral, didn't it? You know, fans all over the world watching. You had people like, I think that was uh, Jericho first brought it up on his podcast before he'd even met or spoke to America, Omega, rather. And it had just become a big hit in Japan. Um, so your thoughts uh, first seeing this um, video with this uh, really young girl, Sonal? It was weird because that like, was probably like most people's the first massive video they saw of Kenny. And I think it was probably a bit of disbelief at first. You're like, because I think at that time when I saw it, it was one of those things where I still hadn't really watched much intergender in general. And then the fact that it was not just a like intergender, but it was with a little girl, I was a bit like, okay. But I think it's obviously because that was when I first started watching wrestling. But I think maybe if I was like now, and I knew it was Kenny and it was like DDT. I'd be like, right, it makes sense. There's going to be something behind it. But yeah, no, when I first saw it, I was, I think I actually like showed it to one of my friends. I was like, I don't actually, like who has no idea what wrestling is, doesn't watch it. And she was like, okay, is, is this really the right thing to be watching? I don't know whether I should really enjoy it or if I should be like ashamed of enjoying it. I was like, yeah, it, it was one of those weird matches, but I think, Looking back at it now, like, it wasn't just thrown there. There was thought behind it. And it's a very Kenny Omega thing now. Yeah, I think that's safe to say, isn't it, Will? I mean, um, it's it's weird with this match because obviously some people look at it and are shocked by it. But then um, a lot of people are entertained by it and think, wow, what a great worker that he, you know, got this five-minute match out of this such young girl. Uh, yeah, and I think it is that thing of, like, I'm, you would want to see it on Raw. You wouldn't want to see it on AEW. We wouldn't see it in New Japan. But DDT is goofy. It kind of fits within what they're doing. Actually, if you're worried about it, the destroying kayfabe in Anglophonic uh, wrestling culture, blame Jim Cornette because he's shown it to more people than Kenny Omega ever did. Um, but also, there is skill involved in things like having a good match against a young girl, against a, you know, a blow-up doll. And one of the things that always strikes me with these type of matches is you see so many people try to repeat it on the indies that you can see the joints, you can see the strengths. Whereas the way Kenny Omega does these type of matches, he can just have it flow naturally. He can be in position. He can kind of manipulate either the young girl or a blow-up doll's body in a way where it looks like they're doing offensive moves in a convincing way. 
in an odd way, is actually a real testament to how good a wrestler he is, that he can make this work, even if it's a really stupid thing to do. Yeah, because I think the thing was, I think he said, like, obviously that blew up in Japan. And then um, I think maybe um, DDT or Stardom tried putting her in there with sort of like people that she not really had any training with and stuff like that. And then they had really bad matches and then her parents were, and then I think she got injured or whatever. And her parents were just like, look, you need to finish school before, uh, you know, before you give this wrestling thing a thing. So I think she, uh, you know, that was it for a wrestling career, which I think he... He's all, he said in a couple of interviews that, you know, it's a shame because, you know, she, you know, had a, a big start in wrestling sort of thing. But, um, WH, were you living in Japan around the time when, um, you know, this match happened? No, I mean, that, that match actually took place in stardom, not in DDT. But, you know, like from there, I think he kind of catapulted into having a lot of matches with different young girls. Like he had a match with a young Riho, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. right after or soon after that match. And then he had a famous match. I think it was in a really sleazy Japanese indie called 666 against uh, a, a female wrestler Nava that goes by the name of Chairman Chairman Ram, who does like a goth gimmick, but she was like nine years old doing a goth gimmick and she was like kind of doing The Undertaker kind of as a nine-year-old. So that was kind of a, probably my favorite of his like, you know, like kid matches, if you want to call them that. <laughs> but I wasn't living in Japan at the time, but to me it was just like, this is him working like Japanese indies and it's fine because that's what I expect from a lot of the Japanese indies is like a lot of this what we call meme wrestling or or gif wrestling um before that existed and and to me like him doing that stuff I, don't, I was never bothered by it I just thought oh yeah he's breaking kayfabe it's like it, it's making exposing wrestling but to me it didn't matter because it's like it's not mainstream wrestling company so yeah I I think you know he got a lot of press for him I think it kind of it helped him become more famous outside of the boundaries of working for a company as small as DDT at that time. Yeah, I think he said that before, that, you know, it got uh, quite a lot of eyes on him um, through, but you know, that video becoming so viral. But, um, I mean, last thing on, on that match, um, JP, what were your thoughts when you first uh, watched this match? It's the kind of wrestling as performance art is, is how I felt about it. So the thing is, I'm probably watching it now completely for the joints, seeing how can he do this? without hurting her like it's a kind of like it's a kind of a test um it's interesting because in going back you realize a lot of the mannerisms he does in this he does in the uh and i can't believe we skipped over it the uh 2004 short film sissy boy slap party um which is like sort of three and a half minutes long of some sort of bizarre warhol guy madden wh i don't know if you've ever seen my winnipeg um it's it's an interesting thing, but he's, he's kind of, it's the thing that he seems to him, he personally loves to embrace is this side of wrestling. And I think there's a, there's a kind of thematic thing that I've sort of noticed it, that he is at his best when the tone of matches are kind of taken away from him. But this in isolation, five minutes, it's, it's something you should see. Um, it's interesting when you show it to other people who aren't wrestling fans. Because it goes kind of one or two ways. They either kind of laugh and they kind of get it, or they think this is horrific. Um, And they're like, well, why are you watching this? Is this what you're into? And you go, oh, no, they're going to make some terrible personal judgments on me based on the idea of watching this match. But um, it's it's the same thing we mentioned with the the Blood Doll stuff as well. A line I didn't expect to say in a podcast, but here we are. Um, the, The With that, it's it's the idea. What I kind of noticed in the match that I watched was Yoshi, Yoshihiko 
is the kind of smoothness in kind of moving over to the ropes and things like that and managing to flick out the arms so it goes underneath. And they're the things that I think you referenced, Will, where if you're watching other people try and do this, they kind of don't get it. But he's willing to embrace that stuff so much and give it much more thought than I think what a whole other series of wrestlers would ever do. Well, Rich, obviously, JP and Will have just fetched it up there. And obviously, throughout his DDT career, he is quite famous. Uh, Kaori Bushi, probably more famous, but then having these matches with the Yoshihiko, the sex doll, and then he had a number of uh, tag matches with Kaori Bushi against Dan Chocodino and the sex doll. I mean, um, what, I mean, just seeing these things for the first time, you know, um, someone wrestling a blow-up doll, what, were, what was your initial impressions of watching uh, Kenny Omega in DDT having these matches? It's funny to me that Will mentioned uh, the fact that Cornette really has been more of the prosthetizer of these matches than anyone. And it's doubly ironic to me that he is a guy who would brag that well, Ric Flair could wrestle a broomstick. And that's essentially what I saw him doing with the blow-up doll, either in singles or tag action. He was proving how much of a good wrestler he was, how creative he could be. JP hit on that a few moments ago. And how safe he could be, both with the doll and with the children. Because at no point did you feel uh, like some of the, say, uh, gnarlier, basically, you know, in hindsight, given speaking out, matches we've seen with, uh, say, Joey Ryan or someone like that, where you're like, oh, wow, that's why you did that spot. With Kenny Omega, you know, I, you know, I will never type it into Google, but I could have a Kenny Omega versus children best of. And that would be something that I feel like I could show to someone that's either a wrestling fan or isn't. And unless I get them to a point where they're like, okay, what is wrong with Rich? They're going to be able to say at the end of it, okay, that was really cool. And then when I say, okay, now we have a blow-up doll, they're going to probably leave. But at least I would have given them a nice intro to what Kenny does. Coming next on Post Wrestling. Round table on what is wrong with Rich. <laughs> but, uh, it's a lot. Um, I, I remember when I first saw it um, on like oh, no on Twitter or something, and it'd be like that seems silly, but it's a small indie. It's avant-garde theatre, you know. That it's a very niche. It's stretching the boundaries. The same way there's normal comedy that most people see, there's also avant-garde comedy that's kind of stretching the boundaries. And then you you see what works and you incorporate it into more mainstream things. It's only when you see a blow-up doll match live that you see how much work is involved for the wrestler and also the referee. And I think the thing with Omega and Ibushi's matches is they were relying a lot less on the referee than other wrestlers you see do those matches. It was more than themselves, than them being able to manipulate the dolls. And it is genuinely impressive. It's not necessarily my wrestling, but it's genuinely impressive how they can do that. And also, one of the best things in terms of pushing forward the idea of wrestling as a, as a sport in kayfabe is their goofy um, training doll. You know, the wrestling mats that they created, which is actually like, yeah, of course, if wrestlers are sportsmen, they would have something to train against and it would look like something like that, which is a type of, this is a weird thing I always think with Omega. We'll talk about this when we get onto New Japan. He became famous for breaking kayfabe with the the children matches, the blow-up doll matches. But I think he is somebody who, at his best, is uniquely great 
at maintaining what is important about kayfabe in the modern day, which is being true to your character, getting people to invest in your wins and in your rivalries. That's a, that's an interesting take. I'm not, I'd not really thought about that, but um, I suppose he's not just known in DDT for these matches with the you know the dolls and the children and things. He also had um, you know some great matches with the Bushi WH, um, specifically the one at the Peter Pan in uh, 2012. Yeah, I mean that's a legendary rivalry that you know predated their both their times in New Japan for wrestling. But he also had you know good matches with like Irie. He had good matches with a lot of the the guys in in DDT, like the up and covers like Hiroshima and and people like that. So he really carved a name for himself in japan as like this this really talented like junior heavyweight in other companies but like like ddc is an open weight company so he could fight just anyone in there and have good matches with them and and his tonally like i always felt like tonally like kenny omega is is perfect for a company like pwg or ddt and then once he gets into a more serious company where he has to kind of buffer against like well this is our presentation like new japan for wrestling it, it becomes a lot more difficult especially when you get to you know the IWGP heavyweight title scene then you know he's he's got to be placed against people like Tanahashi and Okada and Naito and it becomes a little bit more problematic like what he wants to present himself as but in DDT it's perfect and and he he he's won the best gaijin award when he was in DDT from I think uh weekly pro wrestling or maybe Tokyo sports so like it's not like he was a stranger to Japanese fans when he finally got into New Japan pro wrestling yeah, I mean, um, Sonal, any uh, last thoughts on Kenny Omega in DDT before we get on to New Japan? I think you've said it, but it's basically that, like, yeah, DDT is perfect for the matches that Kenny likes, but he also had amazing matches because that's the thing I think people forget about DDT. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons Kenny fits so well in with the company. So like, even obviously we'll talk about like when he was in AEW, you need a few for DDT again, is that it has the perfect mixture of letting it let Kenny be his like kooky self with the matches like with DNO and things like that, but also have those standout ones with Ibushi and like you said, with the likes of Harishima who are now the top names. That's why I think maybe his move to New Japan, which we're talking about is obviously great, but I think DDT is literally like the personification of what Kenny is. It's got light and shade, humor and seriousness. And I think that's why he thrived so much in that company. Yeah, definitely. Cause I mean, we'll get onto it uh, just in a in a bit but yeah i think um a lot of fans were uh, sort of like you know we want you to be serious now you know leave all that shit behind in ddt but yeah we'll get onto that in a bit but yeah it's on to new japan um obviously arguably some of his most well-known work um you know he made a number of appearances for the company prior to signing with them in 2014 you know best super juniors matches with prince devitt and then obviously teaming with ibushi against uh, apollo 55 jp some of the highlights of a uh, you know a, a pre-contract uh, kenny omega in new japan I, I would definitely say um, the couple of matches that he has uh, uh, when they when they win the titles, which I think is just after he has a great match with Devitt. I think just after that he has a ma- um, they have the Golden Lovers versus Apollo Fifty Five in the first one, and it's great. And it's just sort of what good fifteen minutes of barnstorming junior action, which in some ways then makes me sad about the current state generally of the junior junior. Um, side that they have now um, it's interesting because it's WH mentions about how they, they kind of come up against that um, they come up against that buffer and I think the thing that maybe Kenny at times doesn't really realise is that in those bigger companies he needs that, it's for his own sake as much as anything else 
So I kind of like the way that there's, you know, it, it's less of the video game aesthetic. It's less of the kind of Hadouken. It's more kind of in, you know, putting together this this kind of really good series against a team that kind of fits them very well as well. Um, so it's a period of time that I think he kind of, he needed to go through before he went through the contract stays. He wouldn't have been, I think he, if he'd gone in there at the moment, he would have, if he'd gone in there under a contract, it would have been how he would have felt in deep south. He would have been completely restrained by that point. Whereas at least when he did go in under a contract, it was, you know, in a sense, he had the kind of goofiness of the cleaner gimmick. Sorry, I'm moving on several years at this point <laughs> as well. But I would definitely recommend go go back and watch those matches against Apollo 55. I mean, there's loads of really great stuff. You're going on a New Japan world and you're just looking at this kind of, you know, there's so much stuff that they've got there of his career, but there's these just great little bits where you can drop in and out. That sort of every couple of months there's like, oh, it's Apollo 55 versus Golden Lovers at Fantastic Mania. So, you know, which has got this kind of, you know, the crowd are a bit more animated for those shows anyway. So, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy that stuff. But then, you know, Kota Ibushi as well is also absolutely on fire, which helps with that. Just to push back a bit on that, JP, because one of the things I was struck by was revisiting some of his junior heavyweight title reign matches. So this is post-contract. Is mm. It almost felt as a bit late for him to be a junior heavyweight. Mm. In New Japan, and since yeah, all, he bulked up a lot, hadn't he? And like what the junior heavyweights were doing was so much more had had progressed so much more in terms of how high flying, how fast, how dynamic, and he almost seemed a bit was like an afterthought in his own division that year. And it's only really when he goes into the heavyweight division, he starts you know cooking with was it uh, cooking with gas, cooking with diesel, and. Um, <laughs> And I wonder if he's diesel, Will. Fucking diesel. Fucking diesel. Um, but I wonder if, like, if he had gone in in 2013, 2014, would he have made more of an impact in that junior heavyweight mm. division? Um, did they leave it a bit long to kind of bring him in full time? I suppose the interesting question is, he came in as a singles, but obviously his more famous matches, uh, Rich, had been with um, Kota Ibushi. You know, we've all talked about the Apollo 55 one. Do you think it might have, um, you know, do you think it might have been better for him to come in as a, a tag team with Ibushi just in those uh, initial sort of like couple of months when he joined New Japan? I, I think it would have been helpful, but I think, again, it would have been a situation where Ibushi had kind of been and always has been for better or worse He's been a bushy, and it uh, much like Apollo fifty five. When we see them after that relationship ended, you you now have an idea of Taguchi. You have an idea of uh, what happened with Devitt. To me, Devitt is a great example of how uh, WH kind of joked about how much of a Weibo Kenny is. Because when you look at uh, Omega and you look at Devitt by himself. He's the guy that's talking to people up at the bars. He's chill. He's just, he is basically a Bond character that also pro wrestles. Whereas Kenny needed to figure out how to be a little bit more serious. I see, I saw early Kenny when he entered New Japan as a non contracted wrestler as basically Will Ferrell with the ability to have excellent matches. And you need to figure out a little bit more than that. And I think if they were in the tag team, he wouldn't have had that opportunity to do it. He always would have sublimated himself to kind of make it flow with the gold, as a golden lover, mm-hmm. as opposed to being his own, whatever it was at that point thing. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, obviously, we did sign in 2014, joined the Bullet Club, beat Gucci for the junior heavyweight title at Wrestle Kingdom 9, then traded the belt with Kushida for most of that year. I mean, WH, um, I mean, that match with Taguchi at Wrestle Kingdom 9 and then sort of like his whole junior run leading into the heavyweight run that he had the, the year after, um, felt a bit flat to me at the time. I don't know about you. Oh, I hated it. I thought I hated the cleaner. I'm like, okay, he's the cleaner. He's supposed to be like a hitman, right? Like that's the original idea for this character. And then he thought, oh, I'm going to be the Terminator. The, you know, the T-1000 or the T-800 from the fucking Terminator. And then he fucking thinks, oh, I'm going to be Duke the Dumpster Drossy from fucking WWF, right? Because he starts bringing up the, the trash bins and the brooms and shit with the fucking Young Bucks. And I absolutely hate all that stuff because it does not belong. It might, what I think New Japan Pro Wrestling should be. Um, and so it's like, oh, he's just being his DDT self up to like, turned up to 11 here. I didn't think any of his matches were good. There's like interference. He started doing that chainsaw with his arm bullshit. And it's just like, I don't want to see this. This is not for me. And then he started playing into the the character like of, I don't speak Japanese. Everyone knows he speaks Japanese and understands Japanese, but he's playing like the kind of ugly foreigner that you get in like other countries. Like in Japan in particular, you get these guys who, or, or you know, women too, like, but foreigners who come into Japan and make no effort to understand how to speak to people who don't speak English. And the, he just plays that up. And I know that's deliberate on his part. I know, but it's, it's like, that's an annoying character too. And I always thought during that time, and I would say to Chris Charlton, who was like, I was doing Japanese audio wrestling with, I would say to him, when he wants to become a Bay face, the, the, the easiest thing for him to do that is to speak Japanese and understand what people are saying to him in Japanese and then speak it back to them fluently. Cause he's a very excellent Japanese speaker, but that whole junior run, I don't, don't, if you ask me what's a good part of that, I'm I'm not gonna I'm gonna say nothing because I thought it was all garbage. But can we just talk about the hairspray spots? Which you know he does sometimes at heavyweight, but they were constant in those junior matches and it always sucks. It always looks really fake. He makes these weird, goofy sex faces which are just really obnoxious. It's well, just terrible. <laughs> yeah. Which is just the, the cold spray, you know? <laughs> it was it was the cold spray they were using and then and this is something he would do in like some of his all Japan junior matches. But the thing with his facial expressions that his facial expressions have not changed that much. Like his selling, I think is his weakest point. Like, like his body selling is fine. It's his facial expressions that are terrible. Like, like I'm watching some of these, going back to watching some of these matches from 2011, 2012. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, he's, he just got like pile driven onto the apron or something. He looks like JP in hour four of the Christmas show. You know, that's what, that's what I, that's my impression. And like, well, wrong, Mike. You shouldn't you shouldn't be like looking like you're you're completely out of it from drinking too much or something. You should look like it hurts and doesn't look like that from his selling. Even the stuff that I've seen in 2019 and even in you know this past year, I'm like, yeah, his selling hasn't changed that much. It's improved a little, but but not by much. It's less. It's not changed, but he does less of it. That's the main thing. I guess that's probably a better thing. Yeah, with his, with his selling, he's just reduced, he's turned the dial down. His ideas of what good selling is are the same, but he's just a little bit less, which is, like you say, an improvement. So, um, so WH, I'm going to say that you're not too excited about the rise of the Terminator spot that's persisted to this day. Uh, it's okay, like, the, the athletic part of it is okay. I don't like the setup with the da-da-da-da-da and the Young Bucks helping out with that, because I, I, I actually... You know, 
I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna go completely off the rails, and I say I hate the Young Bucks too. I think they're terrible. <laughs> I think people overrated as well. Like they're just they're indie guys who people have deified because all their fans come from the indies as well. And then when they made it to the big times, they're like, oh, they're great here. No, they're actually not. Because you if you watch them, like I like them in PWG because they fit PWG. I did not like any of their work in New Japan outside of maybe like five of their matches in New Japan. Everything else I thought was just terrible because they did not fit uh, Japanese wrestling style. They were in Dragon Gate. When they first came to Japan, they went in Dragon Gate. They were fine for Dragon Gate because that's that they fit that style. They don't fit New Japan pro wrestling style. So, but yeah, I don't, I'm not a fan of the setup of that move, but the move itself is, is pretty impressive. I do like it. Okay. So I'm going to cheat. I'm sorry, Martin. I just have one more follow-up. So every time they had a junior heavyweight tag match at Wrestle Kingdom and they predicted, quote unquote, that they would win the title while talking in English to the camera, one of my good friends basically wanted to stab me for introducing me to New Japan with the Young Bucks in it. So he is personally, when he hears this, will be clapping as loud as possible as you had your diatribe. So thank you for that, sir. You're welcome to you, Rich, and to your friend who is obviously a very intelligent person. Yes, Chris Maitland. He is frequently on my show, and uh, he is the lead person. He actually texted me when Martin put the call out for this because uh, Kenny Omega fan thirty eight said that everyone would hate on Kenny, and I was like, I, I love Kenny. I, I think he has beautiful eyes, and the future is bright with him. And you know, that just ah, uh, you just did it. You did it. You nailed it. I'm sorry, Martin. Back to you. I was the rude American for just seven seconds. <laughs> No problem, mate. Yeah, so uh, not many fans of his junior, and I'm a Young Bucks fan, by the way, but yeah, I do get what uh, WH is saying. But uh, in 2016, obviously, following, you know, AJ Styles uh, moving on to WWE, you know, Kenny moved up to the heavyweight division and became... Before, sorry, just before we go, I don't know, Sonal, do you have any... Have you gone back to see his junior heavyweight run? And do you have, have. any thoughts, Do you have any thoughts on it? Are you going to say it's good? Are you going to save, save the run from all those haters? So he's, he's an odd one, right? Because I literally, even like, like the past few months, I've been looking at his old stuff against like Apollo 55. And I can sort of see, especially when you were talking about how he, when he went into the juniors, he sort of didn't fit. It sort of seemed like he was a step behind. And I did sort of see that, I think, especially as we we're talking about you know, like the Terminator, the way that he was like so adamant, like, I don't speak Japanese, when obviously we knew it and there was this arrogance that pissed me off watching it later on I was like I do like Kenny as like a wrestler I think he's amazing but his promos there like sent chills down my spine in the wrong way like I was like clenching my teeth I was like oh I don't get it and like to even talk about like what Rich and you guys have been talking about with the Young Bucks it just seemed like there was so much of it like the whole Terminator having the Young Bucks involved in everything and I sort of think like Kenny had the ability to be an amazing junior in New Japan, but maybe as a babyface and maybe a few years before, his run actually as it like could had so much potential, but it was probably the case of wrong place, wrong time, and almost the gimmick didn't... I don't think the gimmick actually worked within the junior division at that time. But, yeah, I love the Young Bucks. I love Kenny, but I think, yeah, that period of time was something that was almost quite forgettable in the long run of Kenny's run as a wrestler, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, because I mean that cleaner gimmick, JP. Um, it was it like uh, WH noted. It was very confusing. I remember at the time he said that he wanted it to be like uh, you know the Stallone character in Cobra, and then it seemed to change to a variety of different things, and he never quite knew what. Um, it was supposed to come in and be like, you know, like the mafia cleanup man for the Bullet Club and things like that. But it never, it seemed to constantly change and it never stuck, you know, the same, down the same lines as um, as the original intention for the character. Yeah. Um, maybe he could have done with a sort of axe-wielding motorcycle group that Stallone had to deal with in Cobra. <laughs> and that would have perhaps helped him um, enormously. And that might well have added something to it. You're right. It was completely confused. It was like a kind of glam rock version of using assassin terms, but really nothing kind of... He, he wasn't threatening, I didn't find, like at this point in time. And when he came in, it was like, oh, okay, he's having to do the... He's having to go through the junior run before they move him up to heavyweight. Are they going to be... Are, I, it was almost like you didn't get the impression of the level of investment that they ended up putting into him pretty soon afterwards. Um, and I, I can remember at the time I was thinking of the notable things he did. Was this when, uh, Ibushi had had the match with Styles and he went up on the apron? Was he junior champion then? Um, he was in the juniors at that point. Yeah. He was in the juniors at that point. I don't know if he was a champion, but he was definitely yeah. in the juniors that, still. At that, point. that might have been the high point of it. Because that was the one that had kind of brought it all back to this kind of bigger purpose of how he could play into this. And Ibushi wasn't under contract at the time. So you kind of thought, oh, you're kind of teasing this thing between them that they only ever delivered, um, you know, the once in New Japan at the G1. So it was, I don't know, and it's a funny one because it kind of gets debated whether or not it's fortuitous that the people who left, left. And that made his kind of ascension to the being the lead of the Bullet Club and everything else. Is it is it more is it more fortune? Was it part of a bigger design? It's hard to see here because the character he has by the time he's facing, say, Okada at the Dome, is very is is different to this version. It's much more in the kind of best bout machine kind of mode, which is probably my favourite persona of Je- of Kenny Omega. Well, yeah, obviously you led it in there, but you, yeah, 2016, obviously AJ Styles leaves. He moves up to the uh, heavyweight division, becomes a new leader of the Bullet Club, forms a side stable with the Young Bucks, known as the Elite. First foreigner to win the G1, beating Goto in the finals, and then went on to have a fantastic run of matches from uh, 2016 to beating Okada for the title in 2018. I mean, before we get into the Okada stuff, um, I just want to talk um, a bit about him. Becoming sort of like Bullet Club leader and, and getting chucked up to the heavyweights. I mean, Will, do you think this was always in the plans or it was just a case of, oh, shit, yeah, we had a bunch of guys leave. Let's, um, you know, try and do something with Kenny. Because uh, you'd listen to interviews with him around this time period. And he, you know, I, I don't think he's ever been sort of like overly, you know, talked about the New Japan back office in sort of like good terms. You know, he's always said, oh, they messed this up or oh, I had to push myself to this limit and things like that. So uh, do you think they had big plans for Kenny all along or do you think it was just happenstance that he ended up in this position? I, I think they did. Do you remember they had the uh, Styles Ibushi match where they had uh, mm. Kenny basically cost Ibushi the match uh, while feeling bad about it. So I think they were always teasing this idea of Omega and Styles being opposite sides. Mm. Could that have been a, Omega being the one to go babyface? 
I kind of doubt. I think by the end of Styles' run, um, they were starting to tease him turning babyface. So I think it always made sense. The question I actually have for WH, and he'll, he'll know this better than any of us, is I've always thought of that period in time. It was really strange they didn't try and do quick matches for Omega against Styles and Nakamura. They could have. I'm sure Styles would have put over Omega on his way out. They had the dates with Nakamura um, for like a whole month afterwards. And instead, they let Styles go away without taking the loss. They had Nakamura you know, vacate the Intercontinental title rather than lose it. Have we ever got to the bottom of why New Japan did that? Because it always seemed really, really strange to me. I think with Styles, it was like they, they didn't have any contractual like hold over him to do any more matches, including anything with Kenny Omega. And with Nakamura, I just think they just thought, well, you, thanks, thanks. You don't have to put anyone over. I thought that was a stranger one. I thought he should have like put over Omega in a match before he mm-hmm. left. But, you know, they, they wanted to give him a send off because, like, you know, he's very tight with especially with like Ghetto. So I, I for me, I can see Ghetto saying, Eh, you don't have to put anyone over. We'll just have a big farewell for you, in, even though you're going to the, you know, the competition essentially in the WWE. So that's that. I don't think there's anything more to it than that. Like with with Kenny Omega, like I always feel like, you know, like they had plans for him, but they were always plans associated with the Bushi. Like the grand plan was him to be a the, the player in a Bushi's larger story. And if you look at like the plans that for the double title chase from last year, or like. Um, the idea that Ibushi's gonna, you know, once he signs a contract with New Japan, that you know we're gonna we're gonna make him the IWGP Heavyweight Champion at some point. Then he's gonna be part of that story. He's always a part of other people's stories. He's part of Okada's story. He's part of Naito's story. But he's not part of the the grander scheme story, which is Okada and Naito uh, leading up to this past year, right? So, like Kenny thinking like, oh, I have to push against this and this and this. Yes, he he was very instrumental. Like, give him a lot of credit. Like. In, in, in broadening New Japan's, um, you know, appeal to the Western fans, him and the Unbucks are responsible for a large part of that is, is due to them. I won't, you know, I won't deny them that. But, you know, the thing is, like, he thinks he's more important, like, in the grand scheme of things than he actually is. He's very important, but he's not more important than Okada. He's not more important than even Tanahashi or Naito or even Ibushi. And especially since Ibushi signed a contract, Ibushi is very, very important to that company. And if Kenny stayed, he would have been, part of that story but he wouldn't be the story if you know what i mean yeah definitely there were always sort of like obviously they had these uh one-year contracts in new japan don't you and uh rich i wanted to ask you obviously omega but there were a few times where he said oh, I'm, I'm thinking about my various options and that do you think he was ever seriously considering going to wwe or just um you know coming up with uh, reasons for fans to get more interested in coming back to new japan every year I think similar to what you all were talking about as far as the stories that helped with the story of, am I going to have that next rematch with Okada? Am I just going to say, forget it. I'm out of here. Because if memory serves that one year, he did the sit down with the observer and said, kind of, you know, did the Michael Jordan esque I'm coming back after the fact, most reports that he already had another year on the contract. So he was just talking out of his rear end really. And so that I, I, I didn't mind that. I liked it a lot. I, I think for him, the attention is as important as the journey. And so as with anyone, you're at a performing uh, art and he's an artist. And so he sees it as this is my chance to kind of set the stage, set the conversation. As you all have been mentioning, he's always been the pivot piece 
when it came to other people's stories, which I also think when we get to the portion where he departs for AEW, that made it such a drastic thing because they had things they wanted him to do. And by removing that fulcrum, they had to make decisions quicker. And I think he never wanted to be that. He wanted to be the story. Uh, when we talk about the, the Tokyo Sports Award and how angry he was that he wouldn't be nominated and the fallout from that where people were like, bro, you're taking yourself too seriously. I would push back and say, much like Bret Hart, if you don't take yourself as seriously as he did, he would never have gotten to where he got. And so I, I think for him, those forays into, again, Bret Hart's another good corollary, both countrymen and in storyline, doing those opportunities, those speeches in front where he's like, well, maybe I'm not coming back. Maybe I won't sign with WWE. And then, you know, unfortunately he did. And we all know what happened there. Uh, but in the case of Kenny, I, I, I think uh, the biggest issue he ran into when it came to all of that is he couldn't see the forest for the trees of the other people around him needing to make that step too. Like, I don't think he ever knew or respected enough. Naito was right behind him in a different way, climbing that ladder. It, and he didn't have those opportunities with Bullet Club. When he created, you know, sorry for the, uh, the, the, the little offshoot on the road here, but when he created LIJ, he basically got the Isle of Misfit toys and had fun with them. When they had Bullet Club, it was a corporate, here is what we do. You know, when Devitt left, you don't keep the name. You know, he's very kindly. He said to Jericho, he's like, Gato said, you, you, you're, you're no longer Prince, right, buddy? Like, you're out of here. This stuff's with us. And so I, I think he never appreciated how much of the company was behind him until after the fact. And, and that's disappointing a little bit to me. What I think is fascinating about Mega <clears throat> is that this heavyweight run is him desperately trying to be seen as a Japanese wrestler, he does. He he. No, the the award is a good example. He bridles at the idea that he's a gaijin, and then when he leaves and they take it really personally, he then gets annoyed. But that's obviously the the famous double standard about Japanese pro wrestling that they take it personally when Japanese wrestlers leave the company and don't want them back at the same level but they're more willing to accept that behavior from Gaijin because Gaijin are they're, they're the type of people who, who are going to hop from company to company. And it's a, it's a old example of, you know, be careful what you wish for, because New Japan never treated them more like just another Japanese wrestler than in how they've acted since he left. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, Martin. We, I apologize. Well, uh, there's so much to talk in this time period. Um, I was going to start with the big stuff, obviously, the four matches with Okada. I mean, you know, the stars ratings for them, you know, have gone down in history. And people have talked about, you know, some of the matches have been some of the best wrestling of all time, not just the best from that time period. And I mean, I don't know where you want to start with these. Could start with the Wrestle Kingdom 11 match, or we could just talk about them as a whole because obviously there's a whole story in there, you know, four matches that they had. But um, I, I just wanted to get a gauge from um, from you guys. I mean, which ones did you think were the best matches out, out of the four? We'll start with you, Sonal. Which one do you think uh, was the best out of the Kenny and Okada matches? I think it was really hard. I mean, like, personally, one that surprised me that I didn't know if I'd enjoy it was the two out of three falls match mainly because it was so long and I'd always been like one thing I like about New Japan is there are time limits like the first match is like 15 minutes and things like that and I thought am I really gonna enjoy something that's gonna probably go over an hour and I did I was literally hooked from the start from the bell the minute the bell rang to the minute 
that the match ended. And I think that shows how good the two of them were together. Just the fact that you can keep someone invested for such a long time, but still have the same quality from like throughout. There was light and shade, but there was never a moment where you thought, I might want to turn this off. And I think that's the only reason why that one was my favorite because I've never been a fan of long matches. I think if you go over like 45 minutes, sometimes I tend to like zone out a bit. But this one, I was literally hooked and I was like on the edge of my seat. And I think that just proves like how good Kenny and Okada were. And just it was a great addition to that. Obviously, four amazing matches that they had. JP, I mean, obviously, you know, it's quite a lengthy one, that two out of three falls match. Do you think watching it back, knowing the outcome and knowing that Kenny does finally beat um, Okada, um, it'll still live up to sort of like you watching it live at the time? Oh, I think so. So I went back and watched these and um, and I think they all um, they all uh, completely hold up. I think it's one of the, the greatest match series of all time. I don't know whether or not it has. I, I suppose a card of Tanahashi, like of the of that kind of era of New Japan, is is the one that's that's better for me. But all of these are, in some ways, I think of them like the Toy Story films, with the G one matches very much a sort of Toy Story four, in the sense that I love the first one. That's that's the one for me because I and it's part of something you'll know this from media called reception theory. It's where it's where you are at that moment in time when you take it in. And I was watching this live, and I was just sort of sat there and completely transfixed, and I wasn't having to work, and it was just like this is absolutely amazing. Um, and the second and third of the actual kind of trilogy, if you think of of the kind of big match trilogies outside of that G one match, um, they're they're extensions on that first match. There's the callbacks to them and then the callbacks to the second one as well. So by the time you finish the third one, you know, it's, it's very well rounded. You've got your moments of drama, which is very similar to the bit where you think of all the toys going into the pit um, in Toy Story three and they're holding hands and you're like, shit, no, you know, you know, whereas then by the end, like you're, you're completely, you know, made up without the bit where Andy has to leave the toys there. Sorry, I'm getting the two worlds very much mixed up <laughs> There's also up a here. spoiler alert in case you've not watched Toy Story. <laughs> I've not sport Toy Story 4, Sonia. I mean, that's no. that's clearly the main one. <laughs> yeah, but if someone maybe didn't think, maybe they thought it was a completely different ending, you've definitely spoiled it for them now. <laughs> well, I can't ruin those films. I think they're timeless and you can go back and watch them again and again, rather like this series. And I would but say for the G... I would say for the G1, I think it's one of the great sprints because it's just a 30 minute sprint. You know, it's and and I think that's and it it does feel so different. And because it's in that G1 format, although it does give Kenny the win and it gives the the kind of the rubber match as the fourth one as well. And that fourth match needed to be long. It needed to be two out of three fours. This was an epic story being told to a conclusion. So. It had to go that way. And I'm sorry, and I'm rambling on a lot here, but I, I also think as well, when we talked about like um, WH talks about, you know, him being the pivot piece and we've all sort of mentioned it. I think it's the fact that Akada has that kind of penchant for the dramatic that he's got someone who's got the cardio to keep up with all of that. So you don't have that kind of lengthy saggy part at the start of a Akada match. You don't have that with Kenny because Kenny, it's one of those things where he's just going to be able to go and consistently go for that, that long period of time. And Akada is in better shape than what he is now. So you've kind of just got all these great factors coming together. Um, I, I really like JP's Toy Story 
theory of the Okada Mega Match because it actually works perfectly. Because Toy Story One, I think, is the genesis of it. It's it's groundbreaking. Maybe not everybody gets it. Toy Story Two, which this would be the uh, the hour draw, is kind of unnecessary. It's not bad, but it kind of is a bit flat. It doesn't really need to be there. Some people like it better on a technical level. A bit esoteric when you're getting in kind of toy collectors yeah. and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. But then Toy Story Three, which would be the seventy-two minute two out of three falls match is you know it's the finale it brings it all together it has the most gut-wrenching moments of the whole trilogy and then like you say to, no toy story 4 slash a g1 match finally you get a toy story film free of all the pressure of trying to live up to toy story 1 so i think this is brilliant analysis jp i think i think you need to write this up somewhere <laughs> like jim corner <laughs> i mean I, it's funny to like when you were talking, JP, I was thinking like, I, I thought to begin with, the reason why we differed was how we watched the matches. Because the first one I watched live would be the G1 match. Because that's when I was living by myself again. I've happened living uh, with my then wife for the first two. And the one that I particularly love is that fourth one, which I think is the greatest match I've ever seen. Because I've been so invested in the storyline, I'd been following all the bits on BTE and all like, Kenny Omega's interviews, and I thought the commentary was amazing from Don Callis, and it just was a perfect pro wrestling package. I And I think unlike, say, the first match or the second match, I think it maintains the consistent pace, what Sonal was talking about. No, they never feel like they're wrestling to a a seventy two minute pace. They start fast, they stay fast. Whereas I think there are moments in the first two matches where you're like, yeah, you're clearly pacing yourselves because you know how long you've got to go, and all the callbacks brilliantly put put through. But then when you're saying that you like Toy Story One more than Toy Story Three, I'm like. Well, maybe it's just that I actually like Toy Story 3 better. Maybe it's just that you like the beginning of things and I like the ending of things. We need Rich's son here to make a <laughs> kind of final decision on behalf of all of us. <laughs> and w- oh, he, yeah, he'll, he'll join in the Toy Story theory. Uh, he's currently next door having a... Uh, uh, my brain just stopped. Uh, online play date with some of his friends. So he'll probably be more apt to throw something at me than actually provide expert analysis. Yeah, I've not dared watch Toy Story 3 since I've actually became a parent. So I have no idea what a good check, good check that is. I remember being thinking it was quite an emotional film when I watched it as a, you know, near-do-well 25-year-old. <laughs> so God knows what I think of it now. Oh, hello, Richard, sir. All right, so Trey, these fine folks are across the pond in the United Kingdom, and they had a question about Toy Story and pro wrestling. So what did you think of, what's your favorite Toy Story out of the four Toy Stories and why? Um, One, because the first one, because I like seeing Buzz Lightyear and we fight each other. They're like, ah! Okay, so... He is much, much uh, on the train of the first Toy Story for the violence and the Glad. beginning of the Buzz Woody relationship. So there you go. <laughs> but what's his favorite Kenny Omega Okada match? <laughs> oh, what he's just what's said. His favorite he... Kenny Omega Okada match. Wrestle Kingdom Eleven. 
He sang. Did you like the one where they went for like over 70 minutes? Did you like the one where they had to draw? The, the seven, oh, why is oh. that? Yeah. Wow. He's, 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 he, he, is, he just liked the, the two out of three falls match. It was just his thing. <laughs> so I remember like, I, I think I watched the, the first match a couple of days afterwards. Um, at, no, after knowing he'd gone the six star the hype and stuff like that. And I was like, it was a really good match. I personally wouldn't have broken the star scale for it, whereas I would have done for the fourth match. And I think it felt, it always felt like two people trying to have a great match. Whereas by the fourth match, it felt like these were two people fighting for the title. And that's why I really prefer the fourth one. It feels like they're both in the zone of trying to beat each other. There's none of this. It, it doesn't feel like they're trying to have a great match anymore. I mean, I don't think, like, like I always said that I love the two out of three falls, but I don't think, like, in the grand scheme of things, there was anything higher or lower. I just think the, cause the two out of three falls map was a bit shocking because I didn't expect to like it as much as I can. But I think, like, I'm because you're, like, the first one or the last one, I think I just like them all. Mm. I'm not going to pick when I'm just saying, like, it's the Dominion one that stood out to me most because... You don't really get to see two out of three falls matches that often in New Japan, if ever. And I'm also one that like doesn't really like them as much. But it's just because this one, I think, in the like long scheme like history of New Japan, is going to be one that people pick up on just because, not maybe because it was the end of like that four matches, but maybe because it was sort of like the one that was most talked about and the one that sort of it was a culmination of everything. But it was also just another amazing match just on a grander scheme of, like, in terms of timings and things. Yeah, and that was the uh, seven-star one as well, wasn't it? Um, WH, I meant to ask you, how many, how many of these were you there for live? Live, I was there for... God, I think I was there for the two of them. I think I was there for Wrestle Kingdom, and I was there for one of the, the G1s. I, I wasn't there for Dominion. I didn't go to Dominion that year, and I didn't go to the, the final match. In their series, a two out of three falls match, and I, I probably on deliberately because, like, I once I saw it was two out of three falls, I'm like, oh my god, this is going to go over sixty minutes. Yeah. I don't have the patience to sit live for that, and like, yeah, it, it, it just wasn't going to be something that I was going to be drawn to paying a ticket for and traveling all the way to Tokyo for, you know. Yeah. So, of the four, like, I like the the first match a lot, and I really like the Dominion match a lot as well. It's hard for me to pick. Of those two, which ones I like, I like the the two out of three falls match, but I do think it's it's for me it's a little excessive and self indulgent. It's not something that I would go back and watch like willingly. It would have to be something like for this. Okay, go back and watch it. I I didn't watch it for this. I'm sorry, but <laughs> it's just from memory alone. It's just like um like not something like I'm too fond of. And to be honest with you, like I'm not too fond of you know, that's the start of his reign. And I'm not a big fan of his heavyweight title reign because I think this is where he starts opening his mouth a little bit too much and saying just completely inane, stupid things to the press and especially to Dave, to Big Dave there. And mm-hmm. and I think this is like where really the, the deification of Kenny Omega really starts to go full swing and like and of like the story with the Golden Lovers and people are like, oh my God, it's the best thing since fucking sliced bread and, and peanut butter sandwiches or some shit like that. And I'm like, no, it's you 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 don't know that he's exploiting all your feelings. You know, like him more than Ibushi. Ibushi is part of it, but he's really like thinking, how am I gonna market this? How how many t-shirts am I gonna sell? 
based on like how people perceive me and Ibushi here. And like, just can I just say like the the thing that really turned me off? He does this interview where he says all the, like he's calling out the the Japanese wrestlers. He doesn't say the word Japanese. He says the natives, but he means the Japanese wrestlers. He says they need to step up because they don't work as hard as us. And by us, he means all the white people in the company. And I'm just like, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> so to me, it's like his white privilege goes through the roof at this point. And so he's like, I'm I'm better. And then because he speaks Japanese fluently, he thinks he thinks he's justified in saying this. Like, I'm Japanese. No, you fucking Kenny, you're not Japanese. Look in the mirror. Okay, you are not Japanese. Okay. You weren't born there. You speak the language really well. I'm sure you appreciate like, you know, anime and video games all you want, but you're not actually Japanese. But he, he says shit like this. And the, the funny thing is that Naito, without directly referencing this, because he's basically saying, you guys don't go to the gym. Me and Elgin go to the gym, but you guys don't go to the gym because I never see you at the gym. And Naito comes out and says, and puts out these photos of him going to the gym. But at night, he's like, I don't go to the gym same time as Kenny does. So that's why you don't see me at the gym. But I go to the gym. And that to me is why I'm going to just go on this point that Naito is Kenny's best rival in New Japan, more than Okada, more than Ibushi. is because Naito is the perfect foil for Kenny because Naito knows how to troll Kenny really well without actually trolling Kenny. And so like I appreciate Naito for that. But you know, he does the the gamer event in Florida and he and he hires Chase and Rance to be part of that. And then he just backtracks on that and says, Oh no, I didn't know that Chase and Rance was gonna be on this show, but you, you rented the ring from his company, from his dojo. Like how do you know he's not gonna work it? It's, it's just that was a big mess and it's just like, okay, I'm I'm kind of done with this guy because I think he's an embarrassment to that to that championship and he's an embarrassment to Japan as a whole. I don't think I want to be oh sorry I don't think I want to be as harsh but yeah I mean it was as soon as he won that title of Demean I had such high hopes and then it did almost feel like it just went like down the toilet like the the ray itself was a bit underwhelming he did for me and it all culminated obviously when he left for like AW it just felt like he got a bit too big for his boots and like he thought I'm the champion everything revolves around me like we just said like there was that the interview where he's like basically criticizing the Japanese wrestlers and I just think like especially as fans we wanted Kenny as champion for so long and then it just fell really flat for me like obviously the G1 was great he had that but it all became a bit too much like about the elite and just like him and the Young Bucks and Kota rather than like his championship, it almost felt like the Golden Lovers was overbearing over his IWGP heavyweight reign. And there was even a chance where I was like, because going into Dominion, I was like, I want Kenny to win. It'll be a great way to sort of change it up a bit. And then very quickly, I was like, I sort of wish Okada had kept it now because it just felt like it was the interviews he was doing. And I feel like that was really harsh to say, but it was almost like I just got a bit tired and it almost became like people have said self-indulgent. See, I think it's, I, to what, the point where I was really concerned, I think this became before the interview, was when he did the um, CEO thing, the New Day, where he enters, fresh off winning the belt at Dominion. He's this huge, huge target, this massive, positive baby-faced reaction. And then he goes heel against the New Day. I know I want him to be, be heel up against Xavier Woods, but Kenny just chose to be the heel. And I think there's a bit of like the Ric Flair's about Kenny in the sense of he's a better baby face than a heel, but he feels he's a better heel than he actually is. And that's what he's more comfortable with. Maybe there's something about 
not being comfortable being the object of people's adoration and wanting to play the heel, the troll. And that, I think, was the issue throughout that reign, where he was, you know, we all wanted to be on his side, we wanted to support him, but he was picking fights. And I'm sure in his mind, those comments, you know, about the Naito, you know, about Japanese wrestlers going to the gym, was going to be setting up matches for the future. Um, and was just him saying stuff to, you know, set the seed for future rivalries. But, like, but that's not what people want. People want you to be the babyface. You know, you've campaigned to get this babyface spot, you know, you know, fulfill that promise. And he just never could. He he was always, the only point he became comfortable again in that champ, in that role as a champion was at the very end, up against Tanahashi, when he was allowed to go pure heel. But otherwise, as a character in that title reign, he was just a massive disappointment. Well, WH mentioned uh, Naito then as being, um, you know, his best opponent. I always oh. enjoyed his matches, JP, with uh, Goto. And I think um, Ishii, he, has, he does a number of Ishii matches sort of like between... Uh, Sort of like 2017, 2018, I think they have a few matches in America and then there's a few matches sort of like in Japan, but there's a ton of uh, really good Ishii matches and especially that G1 finals he had against uh, Goto when he won it. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm I'm big match Goto. You know, at that point in time, I remember it thinking being quite underwhelming having Goto, um, having Goto in that G1 final. I mean, I absolutely loved that. Um, I think... This is where, this is where I spoke about earlier on, where you put the the kind of, you have the tone of the match almost like, particularly with an Ishii match. Ishii kind of dictates the tone of what that match is. Ishii's not going to let that match turn into a comedy match, and he's not going to tolerate the silly shit. And as a result, you're going to get a better match out of it. So I remember loving that that kind of US tournament title match as well. And I always think it was that idea, and I've, I've heard this said sort of a few times, that, I mean, Ishii's been incredibly important to their international expansion. We say this is, you know, a lot of us here primarily based in the UK, and this is someone who, you know, we absolutely love seeing. But these, this is when, and it, there's particularly that brutal G1 match, the last G1 match they had where um, Ishii had won, and, and, and it was it was. Kenny on the, you know, Kenny had won all of his matches up to that point and he's bleeding from the mouth at the end of it. And you really, and it's not the sense that he was a heel in the match per se, but it was such a sort of that jarring um, contrast of styles between them as well. And I think like, like, and it's, it's a, it's a narrative that I'm banging on about. I think it's, it's when you, you kind of, you shackle him and you put him in, in the constraints of someone else who's also a great worker. Because kind of to mention, I think that the sad thing about the end of his reign is the thing that we forget is that's coming off the back of one of the great IWGP, if not the greatest IWGP title reign of all time in Okada. That reign is, is like, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Just the length and breadth of the opponents. And Kenny didn't, engage with the title in that way and if you think of the large the title holder before that you've got tanahashi who's holding the title in that way um but then sorry to go back to your uh, sort of main point in terms of that kind of match quality this is the part of it when you're talking about that kind of hall of fame argument it's it's the fact that he's having all of he's having these kind of great matches in there as well but you always 
my wariness is, and I think this is a point that WH raises at points, is that Kenny's good at stealing the kind of spotlight of what is a great match, and at times you forget about who the other person is. We haven't spoken that much about Okada in the Okada series. You know, same thing with Ishii. Same thing with Goto in that G1 final, which was incredibly important for establishing Kenny Omega as a viable Tokyo Dome challenger. And the job that he does to turn it into dramatic, which if you said to someone, it's Kenny Omega versus Goto in the G1 final, well, you're like, well, I know who's going to win that. Much like how I felt about the junior title recently between Hiromu and Desperado, where I kind of knew who was going to win, but that doesn't stop it from being an amazing match. And I think it's the same with that G1 there as well. It's the same thing with the Ishii matches. They, but they don't allow Kenny to be indulgent in the ring. That's what all but, of those great workers do. But that's the interesting thing about the Naito matches. I, I re-watched the Naito G1 matches uh, today, and they are awesome. They are, in many ways, more Kenny Omega matches than the Okada matches because the the Naito just fits into Kenny Omega's normal match style better than Okada. Um, but, like, Kenny can't steal the spotlight because Naito can do all the things Omega does. So they are, these are frantic, dramatic, dangerous matches, and they are awesome. And both guys come out of them looking like a million bucks. And really, the person who's most impressive really depends on who wins, because that's the person who gets to have the finishing sequence at the end to win the match. And I, and I, I, was, I, I did finish watching that match thinking, now, in 10, 20 years' time, I do believe, you know, Kenny Omega in New Japan will be remembered primarily as the Okada series. But that will be a disservice because you have this Night of Series, which, no, I don't think it hit the heights the Okada series did. But I think, given the relative platforms it was given, was just, no, was a really high, consistent feud. You have the Ishii feud, you know, the famous... Um, uh, biting the rope spot in their US uh, tournament match that everybody now copies, but never as good. Um, so yeah, no, I've, and I think the thing is, is that what what I think what Kenny has lacked since he left New Japan is people like Knight and Okada that can match his intensity. The the sorry, uh, Naito and 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 Ishii. The Okada matches were very unique because I think that was where. Kenny managed to work with somebody with a very different style to him. Somebody could be a base, could slow him down, could make him do more prolonged, slower stretches, which is a type of stuff Kenny's not great at normally. Whereas with Ishii and with Naito and obviously Ibushi as well, these are just balls to the wall action matches and they're great. When we were talking about US expansion and Rich, um, how important do you think um, Omega was for uh, New Japan's sort of like US expansion? Do you think it wouldn't have got to the point where they were selling out Madison Square Garden? I know, you know, Omega, uh, Kenny Omega wasn't on the show, but, you know, it was that, you know, people maybe thought that he might be on the show um, leading into that MSG show. Yeah, and I would say one of the things with Omega, with the US expansion that was pretty important was, at that point, and still could persist to this day, Ring of Honor didn't really have the smartest relationship with New Japan. They had this agreement, but you look at Watanabe, 
and he languished for a year and a half. You look at how they would do the War of the Worlds tours and arrange these matches, and people were kind of in, kind of out. The one thing that Ring of Honor figured out real quick was that Omega and the Bucks, for for better or worse, drew people. And it culminated in one of the matches, I think before we get to the MSG show, I thought kind of showed me the, as much as I loved Kenny's uh, ascent to the title and that journey, for me, the thing that was that red flag, you know, WH mentioned the, the privilege he had in speaking to the laziness of his quote unquote fellow native wrestlers. Uh, but for me, it was the audacity to have the IWGP mat title in a three-way match and not just a three-way match, a three-way match featuring Cody and Abushi in what I can only loosely call wrestling's equivalent of uh, a bad Cinemax movie because it started with the Golden Lovers being interloped by first Cody, then Brandy, then Cody and Brandy, then Cody yelling in the middle of a match, he'll never love you like I can. And it, then they are having a three-way for the IWGP title. There were a lot of stuff going on in that. I'm like, I've seen a lot of Atlanta couples, and this isn't the first time where I've seen, like, they've just, that, that's a story for another day. But <laughs> I, I, I just felt like the IWGP title didn't need to be involved in this. And he, again, a blind spot of his was he didn't see New Japan trusting him enough to do that. Because since then, Thankfully, we have never been subjected to it again. And even Kenny admitted how flawed in hind after doing it, like, yeah, we probably shouldn't have done that. And I, I just, when you fast forward, when you go to the MSG show, him and the Bucks and him and Bucks and Cody really did say once AEW was formed, you know, we take credit for that. And some of it was that passive aggressive tongue in chief. We didn't mean it, but we meant it, that they all are want to do amongst the four of those men. And so people, you know, depending on what side of the fence you're on, people would say, ah, they didn't mean it, or, oh, these guys are absolutely super serious. But I, I thought they did. I thought, personally, when I bought my tickets, when I was going down there to cover it, my thought was, this is probably where Omega drops the title. Mm -hmm. And then everything came out with AEW, and then the plans change, I guess. Yeah, I, can, I want to come in on this Ibushi uh, Cody Omega storyline because I think that storyline was great. It was one of the best storylines. I know WH has made a point that maybe it's a bit exploitative of L uh, LGBT fans as a bisexual man. Nothing that uh, gets me to think of Ken of uh, Koto Ibushi undressed is exploitative. I'm fine with it. Um, but it ended with the Dominion, post-Dominion BTE, which actually was a really, it was exploitative as hell, but it was really clever. Because the whole, like, the whole storyline over those, what, six months was Books and, Books and Omega are best friends. Books, uh, Omega gets back with his ex-lover. The Books aren't happy. And that causes Omega and the Books to fight. They try to make up, but it keeps getting wrong. Then a mutual friend of Omega in the books keeps stirring the pot, which is Cody. And then ultimately, ultimately, the books realize that, no, we were wrong. And they accept Kenny and Ibushi. 
And that is what happens in the final BT episode. And I always think that final, that post-Dominion BT episode was almost perfect, except the fact that they made the huge mistake of thinking there was a live issue left with Cody. Because the whole thing with the Cody um, Omega feud, it was about control of the Bullet Club and control of the Elite. So Cody won the match um, at Super Code of Honor, but he actually lost the feud because the books came in and tried to help Omega. The books would not celebrate his victory. The books had chosen Omega. And what that, and that you, they tease this in that post B, that post Dominion BTE, where you have Cody. No, almost coming to give Omega a bottle of champagne, a, a Kenny weightlifting belt. And I've always said, and I said this at the time, what should have happened is you have Cody walking with those presents and more than have him turn back and to set up the match um, at the Cow Palace, they should have had, at, at that point where, where Cody's just staring at his gifts, they should have had Kenny fly through the door as Suzuki is beating him up and it's the shock swerve that you're going to have Suzuki uh, Suzuki Omega at the Cow Palace fresh match to start off his title reign it's something different it's not a match over uh, that's overstayed that's welcome in New Japan it's a chance for Omega to get a big victory against an established New Japan guy and then what you means is you can then rebuild that Cody feud for King of Pro Wrestling. Because I think the reality is, is that they wanted to do something with Cody in Japan. Don't necessarily agree with it, but I think, I think they wanted to do it. But actually, by that point, they'd just done, done the match too often. And it wasn't a great match to begin with. There was no storyline stakes left to it. And so you get this kind of monstrosity that is the freeway. That should never have happened. So, yeah, so I, I, I do agree, but I don't think that's Kenny's fault. I think that's a fault with the book and overall. But where do we, sort of, like, the biggest uh, match that came out of that sort of, like, few was the Golden Lovers against the Young Bucks match that took place on US soil. Uh, so now, what, what were your thoughts uh, on that tag match that, um, that happened between the Bucks and the Golden Lovers? I mean, it was, it was actually really good. Like, that whole storyline sort of, like, I liked it. But sort of, like I said earlier, sort of maybe drew attention away from Kenny's whole win. But what I think is a big thing is it was an amazing match. There was amazing storytelling within it, but it was also like just an amazing match itself. And I think I I just want to put in with with the three-way should never have happened. I personally didn't enjoy it. I don't think three-ways... I think especially with the heavyweight title, like we've seen it with the junior title, we've seen the four ways and stuff. I think it works, but I didn't enjoy it in that sense. But, and that sort of led up to that whole thing. I didn't enjoy it. However, that match I really did enjoy. Their books of obviously amazing tag team wrestlers, Kenny and Ibushi worked really well together. And I think it was a story that didn't, it was sort of very natural. The four guys had such good chemistry together. And I think, in the grand scheme of Kenny's title reign, that was one of the highlights of it, even though it wasn't even involving his title, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, definitely. But JP, I mean, as far as this sort of like bullet club civil war, I guess you could uh, describe it. Um, what were your thoughts on sort of like them having this sort of like, you know, battle for the leadership between Cody and Kenny at the time? Probably coming to the wrong person there. I hated it. I absolutely <laughs> hated it. Um, I just couldn't remember. I mean, I was my favorite version of Bullet Club is Prince Devitt wearing a Republic of Ireland away shirt. <laughs> that for me is when Bullet Club kind of peaked. I went right. This is as good as this is going to get. Um, at that stage, I I can just remember thinking like, this isn't like do this stuff in Ring of Honor if that makes any sense. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of, what, this comes back to the, what I think is like the, the, the failure of the overall reign, isn't it? Is that it's things like it's the golden lover and it's control of the bullet club. What it isn't is about a defending champion mm -hmm. taking on all comers and having a series of kind of great main events. Because, you know, th that for me is, is, is really the, the issue there. The kind of intra bullet club stuff, which is still going on to this day, um, you know, just with different people being moved around in there. You know, we're saying this just before Wrestle Kingdom weekend, and I imagine there's something that will probably come out over the three days, including New Year's Dash. It, it's it been something that is, uh, I, I'm trying to think of, uh, it might have been Rich who said this earlier on, is like, like kind of a very kind of corporate feel to Bullet Club. This is what we do. This is our Gaijin faction. You do this. You interfere in these matches. And they've never they've never done anything to kind of freshen it up. And I think even at that point in time, the most notable things I think about that Bullet Club stuff is really being the elite. That's really the kind of, you know, all that that's the thing that's really going on on around it at that point in time. And it's leading to kind of AEW and all really all the signs were there of them all leaving in the new year. It was just a question of whether or not they would be going to WWE. <coughs> and whether or not they that they would all want to actually do that. So I mean I I absolutely loathed the storyline and it was and it was part of it and I think Sonala said like you know possibly the highlight of his reign bar the Tanahashi match is a match that's that you know between the young bucks and him and and Kota Ibushi. What we're not talking about is a great you know, an amazing title defense against Ibushi at the Tokyo Dome or anything like that. They're the things that when thinking back on this reign overall, it's like all of these missed opportunities you could have had have had this really interesting title reign. And then what seems really odd about it all is that when he leaves, they're not really remotely prepared for it because they have to push Jay White into a lot of these roles who isn't, re isn't ready at all for any of this. And that then, and I wonder in some ways, we're feeling the effects of all of this stuff today, aren't we? You know, I say this to someone who's been, quite down on New Japan this year. I mean, I say thank God for Hiromo Desperado for kind of saving my fandom towards the end of the year. But for the most part, I've been actually quite down. And I mean, down on, on lots of the booking and, you know, you know, Richard's shared in this group chat a, a wonderful photo that looks great for the new Wrestle Kingdom Hulu drama that's coming on January 4th and 5th. Um, but it doesn't look like a wrestling show. It doesn't look like, a show that I'm incredibly excited about seeing. And I think you see these effects because of this kind of fascination with Bullet Club and thinking, well, it opened the eyes to the West. Therefore, we're going to be sticking with it all the way without being how I feel about it, which is let this thing die. Let this thing go away. Because, you know, I even dislike the Bullet Club T-shirt I bought back in like 2015. <laughs> and I feel bad for owning it.
See, I think I've got that show on DVD, which I bought from a dodgy shop in Leicester. Um, that could be a number of dodgy shops. <laughs> but no, uh, JB, just a quick correction. The the tag match was actually before the title raid. And I ah, think this, this is where people conflate things. It's like the, the rivalry with Cody pretty much ends with his first offence. But if you remember, this is why I think you've got to be careful not to blame Kenny for all the mistakes of his, of his reign. Because I think one of the, the big issues is, is that New Japan had quite a narrow idea of what that reign would be. So, first of all, they have the Tongans turn on the elite and try and do this firing squad versus elite for control of the Bullet Club, which basically Kenny in the books and Cody said, uh, no, we don't want to do that. Mm. Um, and so that completely peters out. You never get a Kenny Omega Tamatonga singles match, which wouldn't have been anything great, but would have paid off the feud. So you have this very weird thing where you can tell there are clear creative differences, um, um, you know, between New Japan and their champion. But the other thing is, they just don't exploit the fact that Kenny Omega is an indie superstar. He's willing to have matches abroad. Like, one of the things, as, as you know, somebody in Britain that uh, that grieves me, is they could have gone to Rev Pro and said, we'll give you a date with Kenny Omega for, you know, an IWGP title defense. Book us the best venue you think you can find. And, oh, I see you've got Walter wrestling for you. Can we just do Walter versus Kenny? Um, or Walter versus Will Ospreay. Or, oh, Kenny, you're having a match against Ray Phoenix or against Pentagon that you're going to get to win. Can we build them into your title reign? Mm. And I think, you know, we, we can talk a lot about where Kenny is wrong, and I think there's a lot of ways wrong. But I think he was right. Like, you've put the title on me. I'm a globe-trotting indie wrestling superstar. Let me defend the title. I'm going to win the matches. Let me add these notches on my belt. And they just didn't seem willing to do that, which always seemed very self-defeating to me. Someone that we haven't fetched up yet, and obviously if you're talking about, you know, Western expansion, WH, is his match with Jericho at Wrestle Kingdom and the build-up for that. But if Jericho hadn't agreed to that match, I think it's a pretty much barren wasteland for Kenny on what he does at Wrestle Kingdom that year, WH. I mean, there's no question that, you know, Jericho... And Kenny, like, brought a lot of eyes, a lot of Western eyes to the product, even more so than, like, you know, the the introduction of New Japan World or the stuff that, you know, um, New Japan did with, uh, you know, JP's favorite wrestler, J- Jeff Jarrett. Um, but, like, I don't know what he would have done, like, without Jericho that year. But, like, he then, I think he pivoted from that to, like, winning, I forget what the, his title reign was, like, IC, US, and then heavyweight, right? Yeah. Yeah, so... He was a U.S. heavyweight champion at that time, and then he quickly loses the belt to to Jay White after that match. Um, I, I, I like if he didn't have Jericho, I don't know who he would have defended that title against. Like I don't know, I forget who else was wrestling who I on think that. We were talking about like maybe a Bushi Osprey in a freeway or something wacky like that. No one wants to see that that either. Like, <laughs> and I and I'm, and I'm more higher. I was higher on like Osprey than than I'm definitely on Cody. And and to, to your point about that, that see. That three-way was a direct result, in my opinion, of of Omega not wanting to do a singles match with Ibushi in outside of like the Tokyo mm-hmm. Dome because he thinks we are we are Tokyo Dome worthy, and they might have been, but I think New Japan really wanted him to fight 
you know, Ibushi for the title on on that show in in, the, in, in Sumo Hall, but he just said no. So they inserted Cody into that, like, or sorry, he inserted Cody into that. Cody inserted himself into that because he already defended the title against Cody in the United States in a terrible match, and then they had a terrible three way. And I was just like, I was just so turned off by this whole reign at that point. But definitely, I think you know, like his match with Jericho really bolstered both um, him. It bolstered Jericho definitely, and it definitely like brought a lot of people to come to you know Tokyo to to fly to Japan to to see that match at Wrestle Kingdom. I, on the other hand, decided to leave Japan that year to go to Australia for two weeks and, and had a wonderful time. It's funny with that Jericho match. Obviously, it did, like you said, it did bolster a lot of interest. And I think, um, I think they were saying the numbers that subscribed to New Japan World that year, we you know, was off the charts compared to what it had been the year before and things like that. But before we get into Kenny leaving New Japan, for me, that run he had from winning the G1 against Goto to winning the belt off Okada it was an amazing run. We've talked about a lot of the matches before, but as far as sort of like all over wrestling goes. I mean, uh, Will, would you have that up against some of sort of like the uh, the best wrestlers of all time in terms of that run you had following the G1 win against Goto? Well, I actually stretch it to the uh, title match against Ishii. Mm. I think that's when you then get a lot of drag and more drag so you can't extend it. But yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, particularly his 2017 I would say that's up with any wrestler in the world, in history each year. I think that's up there with Ric Flair in 1989 in terms of the quality of the year. Um, no, uh, yeah, absolutely. No, he had great second half of 2016, great 2017, great first two-thirds of 2018. And, uh, you know, sometimes wrestlers... I mean, I think it's been like we all get frustrated with Omega thinking, like, why can't he hit, hit those heights again? But sometimes you just, everything clicks and you can never quite get to that level again. Look at Triple H, you know. Triple H had an amazing 2000, amazing 2000. Mm. Never anywhere close to that again. Rich, do you agree with that sentiment from Will? It was just everything clicking into the right place and do you think he'll be able to sort of like do that again um, in AEW? I think he'll be able to do it again, but I don't think he'll be able to do it just in AEW. A lot of his edge lord crappy jerk champion stuff with AEW opens the gate for him to have those indie matches while also being AEW champion. And I would argue giving himself the opportunity between wrestling folks like Elva Kingo uh, and others down in Mexico, wrestling across the United States where COVID restrictions allow. And hopefully as things open up more, maybe even foraying into Europe and Japan, this will give him an opportunity with the AEW title to have that. Maybe not the 89. He might have like, June of 89 until like September of 90. If if you get my analogy where it's not going to be that full year, it's going to be kind of disjointed because of COVID, but I think he can do it. Now, my big question for him is in AEW, if he wants to be that fighting champion, they're not built for that. We'll get to AEW when the time allows, but it's not built to be the New Japan US edition fantasy land that many people were disappointed about when it first opened and they got to see more of Kenny unplugged as I call him and that is going to be something that uh, bears watching as we keep discussing I think certainly um, 
I don't know. Was it? I don't know. So, was it a surprise when he left uh, New Japan considering we had all these rumblings about AEW at the time? And he certainly had an incredible match with Tanahashi to sort of like tie up his, his time in New Japan. But do you think it was a big surprise him leaving when he did? I'm trying to remember what my reaction was. I think I wasn't that surprised, really. I just think it sort of, there was some rumbling because I know I was like, okay, if everyone leaves, because it sort of seemed inevitable. As long as, like, maybe Kenny or Hangman, like, they were my favourites at the time, they were stayed, it was fine. But when it actually, like, came out, I sort of, I don't think I was that surprised. I think there had been a lot, like you said, a lot of grumblings that like, Kenny had had and stuff. And I almost think maybe he thought he'd done everything, which, I mean, obviously, how we've described his title reign obviously wasn't true. But I think maybe he thought it was the right time, maybe so he didn't get burnt out in New Japan. Whether it was the right decision, I'm not. Like, personally, for me, I preferred him in New Japan, but I think that's maybe more my thing, that I prefer Japanese wrestling in general. But in terms of, like, whether, like, it seemed... I, it's one of those things that, like I said, I didn't expect it, but when it happened, I wasn't shocked about it. Yeah, JP, I don't think many people were, were they? I seem to recall at the time, you know, it seemed to be, you know, Omega was going to be done with New Japan and this was the year he was finally leaving after so many, you know, there was, seemed to be rumours every sort of like January, didn't there, that he was going somewhere else? Yeah, there was. Um, there was always going to be, I, I think, pretty much ever since um, 20, his, 20, his um, Wrestle Kingdom 11 match in 2017, there was always the kind of each year and the way that they had their contracts was either one, possibly two years. Now they've started to get into the realms of multi-year contracts, mm. which for them, you know, they, they, they it always seem to be somewhat behind the times for it. They, there had been the announcement as soon as the announcement came up with the Bucks and Page and Cody talking on the 31st and the rumblings about a wrestling observer fan who was a, son of a billionaire who wanted to form a wrestling company, which seemed like a laugh when I first read that on WrestleZone with the triple Z. But all of a sudden it appeared to be something that was actually happening. So it seemed somewhat bonkers. As soon as that was in the case, it was like, well, is his time in Japan done? Because even though it appeared to be the one thing he wanted to perhaps do, the one thing that he might have stayed for, if, if, if it would have been, it would have been that big a Tokyo Dome match against Ibushi. And he wasn't going to get that because neither him or Ibushi were either Ricardo or Naito. Um, and that was always going to be the problem. So I don't know. It felt like him leaving was going to be the thing. It was whether or not he went back to WWE. But then if you go back and you hear the stories of how he felt about WWE, I mean, if you thought the creative was bad in 2019, like is a whole new world now there for him. Like if you're ever thinking, yeah, I've made the right choice not going there. And I think he wanted the freedom to kind of be who he is. And as Rich has succinctly put it, Kenny Unplugged, which is a double, you know, it's a double-edged sword that, at times. You know, you, it goes from the sort of ridiculous to, to the extreme. But I think it's more the case that he was kind of, it felt like he was sort of, the disappointment of his run, the fact that his stock was high, um, the fact that he was going to be able to kind of negotiate a certain degree of control um, with himself and his character, which is never something he was ever going to truly get in WWE. And if you thought New Japan was restrictive, then, you know, WWE was something that was it just never was going to sort of suit him down to the ground. But if he was going to be able to make much more money than he was in Japan, then, you know, 
he was always going to leave. And AEW, as soon as AEW as a as an entity became a thing, you thought, oh, he's going to go with that. So I think this is where people may be misremembering the history. <clears throat> because I remember, um, I don't know if you were on the show, Rich, but I remember uh, our colleagues at PW Torch, Todd Martin and Sean Radican, had a discussion about the formation of AEW. And Sean said there is $40 million set aside for a for AEW's launch, this is just uh, as it was announced, and Todd was like, "There's no way there's that much uh, available. There's no way it's that big operation." Um, no, I think everybody assumed Kenny would go with his friends to AEW, but I don't think people realised how big an operation AEW is going to be. So I think I think in most people's minds, Kenny doing both was the most likely thing, and that AEW would be a small enough operation where he could he could flip between the two promotions. And I think and I think it was a surprise to Kenny when it ended up being that the split was so brutal, the demands in this time from AEW were so much that he actually did just leave um leave New Japan. They did they didn't you they didn't make use of his of the final month of his contract. He ended up moving back to the States you know, well, back to North America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I was genuinely surprised. I thought he would stick around. I thought he would, no, he would do the kind of irregular dates, if not a bit more than that. But that split was so brutal and AEW was so much bigger than I think any of us assumed um, back at the beginning of, what, 2018? It's interesting, obviously, you did joined AEW, didn't he? And, you know, became, you know, one of the behind-the-scenes people. And it seems to be, you know, I've certainly read a lot from sort of, like, fans who'd heard a lot about Kenny Omega and, you know, seen all these seven stars being thrown at him. And sort of, like, up until recently, you know, especially with the tag team with Hangman Page and, um, you know, the stuff he's doing now with Don Callis, that a lot of people who hadn't seen much of Kenny Omega before but had all this hype coming into it, Rich, thought that, you know, well what's this I've been sold because it's not what I expected sort of thing. Yeah. And and I think a lot of it went from people were buying into the feelings of the bucks and Omega with the new Japan stuff on the departure, which we'll just describe. Now, another part that came out with that too, was the delay between Kenny's contract, their contract, and then the dissolution of the final month. So they're there. He's not. And then it's a Willie won't they, and then when you fast forward and he's in the company, I think a lot of the the callous stuff, even now, people are enjoying it to whatever degree because of the fact that he's kind of tapped into the Omega that was on that being the elite where he got to be, like I said, edgelord Kenny, where he thinks the camera, he's being the person he thinks we want to see when the cameras aren't running. So when he's talking about like, oh, he didn't get seven stars and then doing the facial things and all that stuff, that to me is hilarious because I'm like, that dude, I feel like you do that as soon as it's off. So the fact that you're doing it means you do it. And so it's like my head explodes every time I see it. Uh, but in terms of the the wrestling and the the, you know, we've seen the year in AEW, he wasn't the cleaner, he wasn't the the best bout machine. He was a dude that had matches. That's weird. Oh, he's a weird dude. Like that's, that's him in a nutshell. And he's okay. That's cool. But people thought it's ironic that when Finn Balor, Fergal Devitt became Finn Balor, 
he lost none of the cool. But when he when Omega stepped out from New Japan to AEW, he lost all of that best bout machine mystique and leaned into the best of Kenny. And that turned a lot of people off and that shocked a lot of people. And I think it took this year for folks to realize that was him. The giant mousetrap with the with the Moxley match where people are just cursing and screaming to the heavens. Why would you do this to us? Uh, seeing him, the drum spot where they went through the, the, the thing there. All these sorts of things started sticking out. The crazy match he did on Dark with Joey Janela, where it's like no one's watching and you're putting yourself through tables and you got thumbtacks. What is wrong with you? You're a president. Act like it. These are all things because he's like, I, this is my art. And then also conversely, trying to take his uh, style, his art, teach it to an entire roster of women wrestlers that don't necessarily see that vision and then having their entire women's division dependent upon it. That maybe was something they needed to revisit sooner than they did. I mean, WH, do you think that in terms of AEW, um, Kenny was like, right, I'm just going to be in the back burner for a while and then go into what we're seeing now, winning the title and then, you know, being the main focal point of the TV show. Do you think, you know, he was happy to do that for the first year of AEW? I don't know. I mean, like, I, all I know is, like, when he said he was going to leave New Japan and go to AEW, I was, like, so happy, so elated, <laughs> static even. But I, I don't know, like, if they have those kind of grand scheme plans in, in AEW, like I, I think for the, for the longest time when they first formed, it was what I called a, a food court promotion. Like, you know, Tony was like the, the, the manager of the food court. And then you had like different, you know, counters providing different types of food, different types of wrestling into this one food court. So you had like the young bucks, you had Cody, you had, you know, um, you had Kenny with his vision of what, you know, women's wrestling in America is, which is something akin to Joshi pro wrestling, which I, don't know if that's going to work in America. And then he did different views. And then, you know, finally, you know, Tony Khan just coalesced everything, I think, is like probably this time last year. And you said, like, okay, this is what AW is going to be. It's not going to be all these different visions, it's going to be my vision, taking ingredients from everyone else. And I'm going to be the cook. I'm going to be the guy with the, the main counter in this food court. Um, to that to that point, like I think, you know, Kenny couldn't get traction to finding his his character until now like i think he wanted to start off as a, as a baby face i think his his natural mode uh, where he excels is as a heel um and so like you know the stuff he did with hangman i think i actually like that stuff i think him being a tag team wrestler with hangman they have great chemistry with each other and i think that's probably one of the things i like about uh him and his career and especially in aw like the, the match he had with moxley the, the hardcore match I know a lot of people were aghast about that. I was laughing the whole time because I thought it was so ridiculous. This is not like people are like, this is so brutally violent. It's like you people have never seen Masashi Takeda wrestle with light tubes and, and him stabbing people in the head with scissors. That's brutal. This is a joke. This is like giant mouse traps at drums. All that stuff that like was referenced before. This is a joke. Like I've seen Isami Kodaka go through 15 planes of like, you know, glass from a, from a fucking scaffold in yokohama so like i don't know what you people are talking about you've never seen big japan pro wrestling so there you go but you know like this stuff that he's doing right now like i'm not fully invested in it i'm not watching aw on the regular but to me it's like it seems like he's more naturally you know inclined towards it i think this is probably going to be a very interesting title reign for him not just as the aw champion i think he's going to become the impact champion 
uh, as terrible an idea that that sounds for him and for AW, it's a good idea for Impact and him being the, the mega champion in AAA. Yeah, I hope like a lot of the ideas that I think Rich said of him fighting Vikingo, fighting Laredo Kid, fighting like a lot of the really talented people in, in the Lucha scene, especially in, in AAA, is, it would be great for him. Um, I hope he has a good year in 2021 in terms of like his matches and stuff like that. But to me, like AEW is not really my cup of tea. So it's kind of up and down for me, up and down for me. But I think it's promising. And like him having Don Callis as his like mouthpiece, perfect. I mean, they, they have really good chemistry with each other because they're both obnoxious as hell. And I I don't consider them Canadians. They're like the nickelback of professional wrestling for me. It's like, oh, they're Canadian. Uh, no, they're not. They're not. We don't. We don't accept them. Like I don't, at least. But there you go. <laughs> I just can't believe WH that you did not pay due homage to the most brutal match, the most brutal death match in pro wrestling history. I mean, come on, man. What do you want? Do you want people to actually bleed in the match? Cry it out loud. No, why not actually have some like you know not non comedy in a death match? <laughs> I must admit, that was one of these words where I was, I was seeing people talk mm-hmm. about that as like this awfully violent match, either pro or or, or, or or negative. And I was like, I haven't watched many death matches. I've watched enough to know that that was pretty weak sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't get what people are talking about. You're not putting I'm not that even on a fan in of field them. in Delaware, are you? No, exactly. I'm, not, I'm not even a fan of death matches. I'm not Benno, right? But <laughs> it's a joke. I've seen enough of them. I've seen enough of them live where I'm like, ugh. It didn't make me cringe at all. Like, it made me cringe in the wrong ways. Like, oh, this is comedy. Why is Moxley doing comedy? Because he's actually a serious wrestler. It's, can, it weird. can I say, actually, I don't think Kenny and, and uh, Moxley have great chemistry. I think I think Kenny really struggles to wrestle Moxley. I think um, uh, Moxley's too slow to WWE. I thought I thought Omega looked great in their match um, back in December. I thought I thought the finishing sequence is the best Omega's looked um, since at least February, maybe before then. He seemed really dominant. He was laying in his shots really well. But part of that was he didn't have to slow down to let Moxley hit him back because it was all him in a finishing sequence. I just think a big part of the issue with Kenny in, in AEW is he's just wrestling less accomplished guys. Guys he has to slow down for more. Guys he has to kind of wait for them to get their shit in. And he didn't have to do that as much in New Japan, which is why his average match was better. Well, he also had that terrible match against Minoru Suzuki in the G1. How do you have a terrible match against Minoru Suzuki? I don't know. As far as sort of like this uh, belt collector and him going around different promotions, and, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So now, how do you think, what do you think the shelf life of that is? Because I think in terms of him constantly appearing on Impact, fans are going to, you know, that's not going to be a draw, you know, every week, is it? Yeah, no, you can't sort of rely on... I feel like that's what a lot of people who liked New Japan, while Kenny was there, they sort of relied on Kenny to feign their interest and keep themselves watching it. And I think at the moment, Kenny, is, I think the pandemic, there's a big like issue and that's obviously going to impact everything that's going to happen this year. But I think, yeah, they need to, like, especially with Impact, need to stop relying on Kenny maybe to get in those draws because we saw the statistics, I think it was from his big title match. And that was like probably one of the highest ratings that impacts had. Mm. And I think a lot of promotions have actually been guilty of this, of using Kenny 
as like that main person to attract people in. Get them in, and then when he does go, or maybe he's not as consistent, then you sort of then the fans are like, oh, well, I came for Kenny, and then it's not really there. So I think, but then also like you said, if you keep having Kenny on Impact, is that sort of gonna lessen the excitement of it? It is gonna be one of those things that when we're finally out of pandemic situations, maybe that's when we can start uh, sort of start to see the real effects of everything. Because at the moment we've seen in so many promotions with the limits that they've got, they are having to work with what they've got. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, but in terms of like him having, you know, blow away matches, JP, do you think AW have got the roster that he can have sort of like, you know, quote unquote, seven star matches again? No. Um, (laughs) They're having one of those matches is the one I think it's going to be up probably next week um, at time of recording, which is against Phoenix as one of the people he's going to be able to have those kind of great matches with. That was always going to be the issue. And I think it's the thing that maybe when leaving, it was the kind of obvious thing is, well, you need the foil, don't you? You need the Okada. You need that kind of great worker in there with you. And also, I think the nature of Japanese wrestling is, Japanese wrestlers are brought up to be completely adaptable to situations and scenarios and react on their feet. Whereas I think in terms of, I get the impression that when it comes to, to the US or Britain, that's something that isn't as natural because it's just sort of not part of the training culture. And I think <clears throat> uh, he, he's, he's not going to, when you go through the roster of who he's going to have these matches with, it becomes difficult. Even with the belt collector g- gimmick, you're thinking, well, in AAA, there's Vikingo. There's a lot of pressure on Vikingo, someone who's very, very young, but I think he can have a phenomenal match there. It's For this to really work in some sort of serious way, he needs to be, like, he needs to be up against Gresham in Ring of Honor. That would be one. It's, it's, it's somewhat, this, this would need to, bro- this would need to broaden out so much beyond impact wrestling for that to happen. And I think it's getting back to that best bout machine in terms of those other wrestlers in AEW, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling. There's people who are good. There's people who's going to get a lot better, but they're not ready at that level yet. And also there's a, there's a lack of actual kind of proper wrestlers, a Timothy Thatcher type in AEW. There's like none of those there. And I think they're some of the people he needs to be up against. I mean, so, my, sorry, go, sorry. Uh, I was going to say my, my person in AEW would be Pac. I mean, they had that great match, great TV True. match in February. Mm-hmm. Pack back, back with his reps in. I think we <laughs> could have something amazing if you give him 40 minutes. Um, but I agree with your point. In terms of the indie scene, um, this has to expand. Like, even if New Japan's not going to give Kenny a call and it's difficult at the moment due to COVID, will they, will they kind of smile upon Ring of Honor getting Kenny involved? Because, you know, Kenny um, going up against, you know, Dragon Lee, going up against Jonathan Gresham. You know, these would be incredible matches. And my one, it's a bit out of left field, and I know she's, by all accounts, an awful person. If you're trying to do something unique with the Impact tie-in, get Tessa Blanchard in for one-off. Him becoming the lineal Impact champion, because she never lost the title in the ring. You can do something to set up the match with Rich Vaughn. And I think Tessa Kenny is a bit unique. It's the type of thing you can't do in AEW. That would get a lot of eyeballs. Much more than Kenny versus Rich Vaughn. 
That's, I think that's a fairly wild booking choice there by book. I'm the wild man impact needs. <laughs> Got a few of those over the years. Yeah. <laughs> but just to round up it's sort of like obviously AEW's not been going that long. But um Rich, I mean, as far as AW goes, do you think Kenny was sort of like on their back burner and now he's like, you know, oh I need to be the guy to set this uh, company forward into the new year? With the, you know having the belt and everything. Yeah, honestly, uh, I I think it's a lot similar to what WH was saying with the uh, analogy of the food court, where once Tony Khan came in and said, "I buy the groceries, so I'm fin- figuring out what dinner is going to be," things kind of got put in line, and I think both he and the Bucks were so eager to get other people over that it was almost a happy accident that it occurred. And so by the time they've now gotten to 2021 and he's champion, he's top guy of the card, it, you've also built up so many people under him. Darby Allen, you have Team Taz ascending, you have all these options that are going to be there for him. In fact, with all of this, uh, you know, JP just mentioned they don't have a wrestling machine like my man, Timothy Thatcher. It would be interesting to see how they handle Kenny Omega having an opportunity to wrestle someone like if I were him and I'm going to put on my crazy uh, will hat as far as booking. I'd have him do a match at some point with Hook because I think that's a match where even if Kenny runs through him, if they anticipate they're going to be around a while and he's as talented as he's seen in his limited viewings, that's something where you can point to and say, this is where that guy got started. And then as he moves up the ladder, maybe a year, two, three, five down the road, you have something there. Uh, But ultimately, I think with him at the top guy, it's going to be fine. It's just going to be a matter of, especially with an episodic wrestling show, instead of a tour system, how they're going to arrange those challengers so it doesn't look like you stack the five best people and you can put, no offense to him, a Brian Cage in that mix. Because him and Kenny, I think, would be a little clunky, but would work. I mean, the match I really want to see, which will never happen because AEW won't spend the money, is uh, Kenny versus Brock. I, I think I think if Brock's motivated, I think if Brock's motivated. Raven Cottage, mate, that sounds like a main event. <laughs> but I think if Brock's motivated, I think his him and Kenny's style would actually mix quite well. Um, and I think one thing we haven't not mentioned, but we're talking about his junior heavyweight run, he really bulked up. Like he put in the hard yards, um, more ways than one. Hint, 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 hint. Um, to justify his heavyweight tag. Um, because the the size he is now, com- you know, compared to what he was when he entered New Japan, let as a contracted wrestler, let alone when he was a a regular forum, is quite remarkable. And I think it does uh, add a lot to his power moves and helps him be a more impactful wrestler. Well, just before sort of like we wrap this thing up, I know Will you wanted to bring up that he's been over to the UK quite a few times. He talked about it before. He, he was it in Wolverhampton those independent shows. I think you can find it on YouTube. There's a four way that involves him and Zack Saber Jr. and Joel Redman. I can't quite remember the other one and the crowds chanting "Who are you?" at Kenny Omega. God, how times have changed. Um, but yeah, there was those, and then obviously appeared for WXW, and then obviously the Elite came over here for those uh, run of three shows, was it? Red Pro, Vocal Pro, and um, OTT, wasn't it? No, four, because you you, Martin, you've been criticised for BWE for being anti-Scottish. You've forgotten the Discovery Wrestling Show that oh, yes. kicked off the whole door. I mean, I 
I would never be accused of being anti-Scottish, unlike you, Martin. Um, How dare you? <laughs> but no, no, they did four. They did four shows Wednesday to Saturday. Every show had more than a thousand people. OTT had over two thousand. You know, other than RevPro, these promotions aren't promotions that are doing this this level of fan interest. I went to the uh, the Fight Club Pro shows the month before. They struggled to get three hundred people. So the fact that that 2017 tour did so well is a real testament to how seemingly overnight Kenny Omega became the biggest deal in pro wrestling. I mean, I think. I think, were you there as well, JP, that Wolverhampton yeah. show? They could have sold three times the tickets. Like, I had to pull favors to get a ticket because it sold out months in advance. And it just, you know, whatever you say about Omega, he was a big deal. He was a big draw. And the fans and all those shows absolutely loved him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I remember was when they were originally going to come over the DTTI they were going to hold it in their old venue um, of the Fiction Warehouse, which for anyone who hasn't been there, it's a room next to a car park. Um, <laughs> it's bleak. and Well, it's Wolverhampton bleak, which is as bleak as anything. But it, it's, and you know, and there was, it just seemed ridiculous having been to a show there where me and my former podcast colleague, Joe, we were stood up a ladder um, watching, and instead they'd moved it over to the um, to this sort of banqueting house. Yeah, it looks like an Indian wedding venue. Yeah, yeah, like a, a wedding wedding venue, and they had it in there. And it was, and the things that I can remember from that, and I was, I was at, at that, and I was at the uh, the Rev Pro show because I paid twenty pound for a photo, um, which I'm sure WH loves uh, for this day. Uh, but they um, they had just a box full of money. Like they weren't merch lines and the photo lines were not leaving. They were completely there that weekend and they just were going nonstop. They looked absolutely shattered at the Ref Pro show. I can remember there were some booking squabbles, I think, because it was British Strong Style versus the Elite in Wolverhampton. And there was a long delay in the middle, like of like an hour to an hour and it was like what's going on and then you remember oh it's fight club pro it's normally a shambles and, <laughs> and here this was the case where like they you know apparently there had been sort of booking issues around that point in time but it had been um like him coming over it was an event um and people also forget a show that kenny did come over to that didn't go to he was at 4fw in swindon that was his first booking a few after, times, no, a few times. I think he appeared for them like once a year. So I think, yes. so I think he kept going back to them as sort of like a loyalty thing, didn't he? It was his first book. And again, Swindon, that's a place. <laughs> um, there's like, like it was it was a case where he was, I also saw Kento Miyahara there, just a wild promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was one of the things where like, it was the first um, show that he did after Wrestle Kingdom 11. It was his first thing, like he and and it was the first show he'd come back in, and even then he was doing the kind of will he won't they, and I think it was in, in February when he when he was over there for that. So he's had this kind of weird effect on the UK in recent times, where he does feel like this kind of bigger major league star. I mean, I've often wondered. I know we've not even really kind of mentioned it, but with all the preponderance of network of streaming services and Sky channels and the rest. Why is that a Mega Man documentary never sort of yeah. appeared over here in any form? Mm. As well? It's going to be on Sky Atlantic because they, they yeah. tend to pick up Showtime things. 
but it, even it, if, it's, if it's TSN, would it not be? Is it part of? I don't know if it's linked in with ESPN in any way, shape, or form. Because in which case, it should be appearing on BT Sports. You know, I can watch a two-part documentary on Michael Vick, which is great, by the way. But I can't watch one on Kenny <laughs> Omega. I mean, it's it's just know. one of the things. I you can't see it now because even the version on Fight Club Pro's VOD service is edited. But I mean, we we've, we've kind of cast aspersions on Kenny's promo ability, but the promo battles that he and the, no, basically the promo beatdowns he and the books delivered on British Strong Style um, throughout that match, and then they kind of do the putting them over at the end, was genuinely hilarious. Like, you have them talking about how they've earned more at the merch table than they'll get with their that, their annual guarantees. You have Kenny talking about how... Not wrong. He, not wrong at all, but when he first came to the UK, he knew Trent as a promoter rather than a wrestler. You know, it's genuinely hilarious stuff. And I've, I mean, me and Rich did a podcast about this with Alan Farrell. That... That six-man tag, which is Strong Style versus the Elite, isn't a great match. It's a great happening. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, obviously me and you were there, JP, I don't know if you went, Martin, but I think anybody who went there is very happy we went because that probably was the peak of Brit Res, just artificially capped by being in a venue that I honestly think they could have gone to the Coventry Sky Dome yeah. and it would probably have sold it out. The mecca of Brit rest, yeah. But <laughs> just to uh, just to sort of like wrap up, and uh, we'll go around, you know, around the table, so to speak. But um, as far as his, uh, you know, Kenny's legacy, and obviously he's still got, um, you know, a ways, a ways to go in this. But WH, I mean, as far as uh, Kenny's legacy, I mean, um, in terms of like how you view him and how he's going to be viewed in the wrestling world. I mean, obviously there's a lot of controversy surrounding the Observer Awards and his Hall of Fame ballots and things like that. But how do you think, sort of like, in terms of legacy, how he's going to be viewed? I think he'll have a very, you know, positive legacy, like, from from a lot of people, especially his time in Japan. I think a lot of people romanticize that era of his career, particularly in, in New Japan. And I, I feel like, even though I'm not watching AEW, I'm not, like, I would never consider myself a viewer or even a fan of, of the product. I'm glad that they exist. Because I, I don't like the monopoly of, of professional wrestling across the world. So I'm glad AEW exists. Like, I think AEW has like, got a lot of great momentum. And I think they're going to be a successful company down the line. Because I do have a lot of respect for, for Tony Khan. I think he's a very smart guy. And I think he knows what he wants to do with this company. So, And I think you know Kenny Omega is probably going to be an integral part of that. Especially now that he's champion. But like, just don't give him the microphone. Just let Callis do all the talking for him because he's he's a terrible promo. He's just going to open his mouth and put his foot in there. You know, that's 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 one of his legacies. Like, I think he'll he'll go back to Japan for DDT. I don't think I don't think it's very likely he'll ever go back for New Japan unless they really repair that relationship. And there's a lot of repairing to be done, not just between him and management. There's a lot of repairing between him and certain performers that needs to be repaired as well. Like, I'm not going to speak on that, but. Um, but yeah, like I think his overall legacy, and if, it, here's the thing, I think Dave, you know, if Dave Meltzer is going to make sure that he has a very positive legacy because he has deified Kenny Omega in the elite to a point where it's like, uh, I respect Dave a lot, but like, I think he has a blind spot to these guys, but the observer will be there to like, you know, make sure that everyone knows how great the elite are and Kenny especially. So now, what do you do? You sort of like in terms of like Kenny's legacy up to this point. Then, what do you? How do you feel he's got? He's going to be viewed in in the whole wrestling landscape. 
Yeah, it's difficult because he's obviously an amazing wrestler and there's no denying that. Sometimes I wonder maybe in terms of actual wrestling, is that going to be overshadowed by, obviously, all this promo stuff, the fact that maybe he's not the best on the mic, some of the stuff he said as champion. However, there's no doubt that he's had some amazing times. Like, I loved his United States run in New Japan as champion there. I think that was way stronger than his IWGP reign. He's got great stuff from DDT. Obviously, he was meant to have a match in DDT this year, but it got, I mean, last year, but it got called off. So DDT is still a big place where he can go to, like, sort of go back to maybe the Kenny that he was before All of New Japan. But I think no matter, like, what you think of him, like, whether you like him or not as a person or a wrestler, you can't deny that he's great. And in years to come, his matches with, like, Okada and things like that are going to be legendary. And people are going to go back and watch it. And, yeah, like, I'm the same. I don't really watch AEW, but I think... He, Kenny is going to be instrumental to that, both behind the scenes and in front of the camera. And really, it's just going to be a thing of seeing like what the future holds. Is there ever going to be that bond with New Japan again? Maybe not, but can he still have that big presence in Japan? That's an interesting question, Will. I suppose in terms of legacy, do you think we'll ever see Kenny going back to New Japan? Um. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I struggle to imagine that at some point, particularly if Ibushi does end um, Wrestle Kingdom as champion, which is what I think will happen. I think the Jay White match is to echo his loss of to Jay White uh, this time last year. I, I, I cannot imagine they don't get him back for at least one show, and he won't do that you know, for, for his friend, for his old friend Ibushi. If, however, Omega's participation in New Japan is dependent on <clears throat> on a broader deal with AEW, then it won't happen. Because I don't think a deal between AEW and New Japan is happening anytime soon. I think I think people overlook how you know, disrespectful the formation of AEW was, uh, was handled. How you know the likes of New Japan, Ring of Honor. Have you no know, have reason to be offended, and New Japan in particular doesn't need the uh, to to go kind of go to Tony Khan and suck up to him. Um, in terms of the legacy, I think you no know, that period when he was one of the greatest wrestlers in the world or the greatest wrestler in the world can never be taken away from him. He's still having very good matches now. Um, He's got the chance, you know, this year for the first time to be a major champion in in America. So there, there's certainly there's no level below which his reputation can't fall, and he has a chance to build a bigger legacy in a bigger stage uh, with AEW. The one thing I think is genuinely interesting, and they keep teasing it, and I think next week he has a show on TNT on the internet about the AEW game is Kenny has flirted with doing the esports stuff and I've seen some of the stuff he's done for ESPN uh, covering esports tournaments in Japan and he's actually very good at it and I think no, wrestling esports is an actual tie-in and if he can be the guy to get to crack that nut, how do you incorporate esports into mainstream pro wrestling, not just Xavier Woods doing it in his spare time on a YouTube channel, that could be pretty huge because I think there's a big untapped market there in terms of you know, new fans that you can 
you can entice, but also new marketing opportunities. So, uh, so I, I think Kenny's legacy is still to be written, but he'll definitely go down as having one of the best years in wrestling history. Yeah, some interesting points there, Will. Um, Rich, um, any final thoughts on uh, Kenny Omega? Sure. I, I've, I've appreciated Kenny because his career has been something that isn't, you didn't expect it. When he left, you know, and you look at his career starting in trainee and then moving now to where he's a executive vice president of a wrestling promotion. As much as we've talked about the in-ring stuff, it's going to be more important to see where the next five, 10 years, especially if AEW persists, what he does as an executive, because what is he going to do to create the next Kenny Omega or the next evolution past what he is? You know, in the words of Frieza, is this the final form? Is this going to be just what they see of Kenny? I, I really am excited to see what he can do because I, I, I think like WH said, uh, the, the idea of them making the women's division Tokyo Joshi Pro may not work in the United States, but there is an, there's some sort, there's an ingot of, I'm, now I'm thinking of Global Force Gold, oh my God. Uh, there, there, there's a kernel of potential there in terms of things maybe you can borrow from Tokyo Joshi Pro and make new in the United States. And I think if he keeps trying to innovate, or like Will mentioned with the, the esports stuff, he's going to be fine. But if he wants it to be down in, down out, I'm just a really good wrestler, that isn't going to be enough. And I think this, I'd be disappointed because he's sold himself as a person that wants to change the world. And with some of these outside ventures merging into wrestling, he'd actually truly be able to do so. And JP, just to uh, to finish us off in terms of, I mean, you had some great analogies. Um, have you got any sort of like more Disney analogies to uh, wrap up Kenny's career I, with? <laughs> I haven't, but there's something I was thinking. I would like to rescind the comment I made about the Bullet Club earlier on, because I was thinking there was one man who was in the Bullet Club who was linked in with Global Force Gold, who really could have made that whole Bullet Club story a lot more interesting for me. Um, and that would have been Jeff Jarrett. Uh, <laughs> I, Jeff Jarrett, Kenny Omega is a match that, I don't know if anybody wants to see Bar Me, but I certainly do want to see that as well. Um, in terms of him and his his legacy, I think there's what he kind of, I suppose in some ways, it, what he ends up representing for me in some ways is the kind of non-WWE aesthetic, which is kind of at my core as a wrestling fan. I've said before in many podcasts, I was a WCW fan. That's who I liked. I was not a WWE fan. And I was always looking for that number two and I was always looking for that kind of different company. So whether, you know, hence hitching my wagon to the impact TNA train for longer than any sane, sensible person should ever be doing. But um, I think he kind of represented that in its kind of almost purest form, right or wrong, the things that you don't like about him the things you, and the things that you do like about him, they're not the things you're getting on WWE TV. And that ends up becoming the, what people think about wrestling. So as AEW kind of builds and whether it just somehow gets into that mainstream, whether it's it's through eSports as well. And I, I think if they're going to make a, a play for someone's contract being up, I'd say sign up Xavier Woods. Like, because there is someone like, I'm, I'm not being, like that in and of itself, you'd be kind of really sort of nailing that. I think getting that video game right is a much bigger deal than what we'll ever kind of give it credit for. Because if they put something out, it's been a long time since there's been a good wrestling game. But I think at that at this stage, they they really do need to um they need to nail what that game is like. But I think he's 
the Hall of Fame thing I found strange because I agree with Rich. There's still a lot to be written yet. And I don't like the, the Hall of Fames feel like a very final thing. So the idea of um, him being in a Hall of Fame now, it's like, I don't know, when Wayne Rooney had his first autobiography, wrote at 23, it's like, what is he going to say? <laughs> he played football loads as a kid and then he and then he played forever and then he went to Manchester United. There's no story there. And I think it's that kind of longer term now, what happens in these few years, particularly how he copes with the point where his body isn't able to do the things that he's able to do now. How does he react to that? Does he adapt his style overall? And these are sort of questions yet to be answered. And Will, did you have a final final point to make? I, I did. Uh, this is a question for everybody. <clears throat> Obviously, we talked about Kenny Omega as the leader of the Bullet Club, and there's been, what, five-ish leader of the Bullet Club? We had Prince Devitt, you had AJ Styles, you had Kenny, you had Jay White, and you can argue you've had Evil. Jeff so. Jeff. Very, oh, we'll add Jeff as well, just for you, JP. So, very special version of Snog Marry Kill. For the Bullet Club leaders. So, you have three of each shag, Marry Kill. This is our PG podcast. Um, Who, no, of the six leaders of the Bullet Club, hat tip JP, who would you shag? Who would you marry? Who would you kill? Go on, JP. You can go first. There you go. Thank you. It should be WH Park, whose answer I'm oh, really yeah. interested in, in, in yeah, hearing yeah. this one. What's your, what's your answer? Kill, 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 kill. Uh, me? I should go first? Go on. Okay. Uh, Barry, Fergal, uh, Shag. Jay White's kind of good looking. Okay. Jay White, kill. <laughs> Evil. Okay, kill evil. To argue with, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, I think mine would be, I think marry Kenny. He likes video games. He seems a sweet soul. Uh, Shag, AJ Styles would really annoy him, and then kill kill evil. <laughs> Just got that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> The gay community. <laughs> oh. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree with you there, Will. I think that's, uh, yeah. I don't think I can go better than that one. <laughs> well, Who's next? Shall I go? All right. I'll just say I'd, 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 I'd go as a combination of them. I'd have AJ as certainly at least snog him. That would just wreck his mind in and of itself. <laughs> And that would make me laugh. Fergal Devitt and marrying. When I want to watch that Ireland game, he'd get it. He'd also, <laughs> you know, he'd be wanting to watch the rugby and the Gaelic, hopefully, as well. So, like, there's a lot of sort of big Irish love in there. And I'd kill evil because he's awful. And um, <laughs> I hated Battlefield Earth. I hate Battlefield Earth even more when it's um, being portrayed in New Japan main events. I don't want that glam rocker anywhere near that main event scene. I've had enough. Will I go next? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Oh, oh that is right. So, obviously, I mean, anyone who knows me, I'd marry Jay White, because, like, probably one of the biggest Jay White fans on the earth, probably. Um, avoid evil, because I used to like him in L.I.J., but now I'm just bored of him, like, anything. Like, Shag, 
probably Devitt because you know it's Devitt. But yeah, I feel like I'm a bit sad. That I'm the only person who'd marry Jay White. But yeah. And, and wrapping it up, Rick. Oh, pressure, pressure, pressure. Uh, I, I think I'm gonna join. Some, I, I, I was on the Mary Fergal train, but I think with his uh, Black Lives Matter shirt and his just delightful air about him, I'm gonna marry Jay White. There you go. I'm breathing. I don't, with I the don't feel alone now. I don't feel alone. Yeah. You're <laughs> breathing, breathing with the switch. All these counterversals, they do align themselves quite well with sex. <laughs> oh, oh, dear God. William, William. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, so so thanks for that, Will. Appreciate that. And and for those of you, 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 Will and I will be doing a podcast later today together. So that'll be even more fun. Where I won't have you all to kind of keep them in the lines. It'll just get right, it'll just get right wicked. Uh, I, I think Snog, I would go with. I, I, I'm I'm with this AJ Styles initiative because <laughs> I, I just want to stare at him and just just eye contact the whole time, just, <laughs> yeah. like middle school. Uh, and, and then kill. I can't kill. Even, he's one of my children. Even when the children go astray, I cannot kill one to So I'm I'm gonna say uh, Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> Which Jeff would you kill, though? There's like 14 of him. <laughs> I'd kill the one with the Global Force goal because that's the best version of him. If it wasn't for Jeff, we wouldn't have had Wrestle Kingdom with English commentary. So, or well, Striker doing oh, There's Kingdom. another reason to kill him, then. <laughs> <laughs> Did Setting that, up WH, though. Uh, that, that, that question came from... Um, um, Around the time the uh, documentary, the uh, Golden Lovers documentary came out, FSM got to interview uh, Kenny Omega. And so uh, my editor at the time, Brady Nelly, was basically asking me to feed him feed him questions he could feed to the person doing the interview, like suggested questions. And the, the, the questions they rejected was, uh, British Strong, no, you wrestle British Strong, Son of Wolverhampton, marry Shaquille, and what's it like to have sex with Koto Ibushi? Um, some people have no no appreciation for my genius in journalism, <laughs> and on that bombshell, I think uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll head out of here. So uh, yeah, plugs. We'll have plugs galore. Let's start with you, Sonal. But um, how can people see more of your stuff? So I'm on YouTube at sort like Sonal's Life. Just type that in, and my wrestle wrestling twitter is at wrestling underscore chat so you can find everything there i just talk nonsense wrestling banter and i sometimes post the odd meme wh well you can hear me here at postwrestling.com every month like a couple of times um post perez uh usually with john pollock and uh the long and winding royal road i'm looking back at 1990s all japan pro wrestling the greatest period of professional wrestling ever in the world and you know like i'm i'm also appearing uh on uh you know grapple spotlight sometimes with jp as when he's still coherent and uh i was on will's show the right after i'm never coherent and, uh, yeah and this is coming out this weekend so check out the uh russell kingdom primer i did with uh john and way uh, that's up already and uh yeah and uh rich and will i kind of feel like your twos all intersect do you want to go first, Rich? Okay. 
So if you want to follow me uh, at Rich underscore Fan, F-A-N-N, uh, at The Torch, I do the Deep Dive, which is a PW Torch Daily cast, as well as the East Coast cast, Radican Worldwide, and uh, Trade Show guest slash hosting with Will, who I will now tag out to. Yeah, so we obviously, uh, I'll be on Rich's show, The Deep Dive, uh, later today. Rich is actually going to do a work podcast with me late next week, which is because uh, uh, we both work in Equality and Diversity. And uh, you can catch me on PW Torch uh, for uh, the British Wrestling Report, where we did have WH and Benno and Gareth in the kind of the after lounge of the Monster Grapple Spotlight Christmas special. You can also catch me talking about politics, including Brexit, which is a non-controversial topic at the best of times on It Could Be Said. And I've just started an It Could Be Said newsletter at itcouldbesaid.substack.com. And finally, JP. Yeah, I was on that. I, I, for some reason, I wasn't able to make it to Will's post-Christmas uh, <laughs> special. I can't think why. Um, yeah, I'm on that. Um, and I don't know if it's... A, if it's uh, yeah, so if you... First of all, in terms of it, uh, Grapple Spotlight, uh, out on Mondays, we're doing the next show. We're doing is the Tokyo Dome, so we're going to be doing that on Monday and Tuesday to go through all of the events at the Tokyo Dome. We had the Christmas special out recently. You can watch it on YouTube. I don't know why I'm plugging that because I don't come across great. Um, I've certainly had a drink. I remember there's a question, Will, where I go on to you about lilt, which is something that I don't know if anyone's expecting, but I'm big on lilt and ting. Anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, the Christmas special, four hours long. It was great. Uh, if you're watching any matches that we've mentioned on here, go back, rate and review on the Grapple app, which you can download from Apple and on Google Play as well. And hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, we've got a few announcements of what we're going to be doing um, in terms of Grapple podcasting um, in the next week or so. And as for me... And you can find me on Twitter at JPGP. Sorry. Can't forget that. Um, and as for me, obviously, BWE every second Thursday of the month. And then um, Bushman Thompson's Wrestling Adventure and our latest episode, Ad Sanalam, when we were looking back at King of Pro Wrestling 2016. So, and of course, all roads lead to www.postwrestling.com. And, uh, you know, John and Wade have been doing plenty of stuff leading up to Wrestle Kingdom. And um, obviously, WH mentioned about the primer, so be sure to check that out. And Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will catch you next time.